Hello there, welcome to another episode of MA Fight Club. I'm your host, Manny Galarza. Today we're breaking down UFC Vegas 44 coming up on Saturday, the 4th of December with a 6.30 p.m. Eastern start time. 15 total bouts on the card. No championships on the line, but we got some names you recognize, like the legendary Jose Aldo scoring off against Rob Font in the main event, and some other guys like Rafael Fezes and Brad Riddell. So some nice household names on the card. We'll go over each fight, one fight at a time, breaking down each fight, giving you our favorite pick to win. We'll start the prelims, work our way all the way up to the main card. At the end of the episode, we'll give you our summary of all the picks. Let's jump right into the first fight night. Here we go. First fight, the premium card is going to be a bantamweight bout between two American fighters, Luis Smolka and Vince Morales. Morales goes by Vendetta. He's 10 and 5 overall, 2 and 3 in his last five fights, currently plus 120 in the money line. He hails out of Ontario, Oregon, 31 years old, 5 foot 7 and high with 68 inch reach. He's training out of American free fight MMA. As for Mr. Smolka, he goes by The Last Samurai. And that's not The Last Samurai, it's The Last Samurai, like DA. <laughs> anyway, he's 17 and 7 overall, 3 and 2 in his last five fights. Slight favorite here at minus 140 in the money line. He hails from Kapoli, Hawaii. He's 30 years old, 5'9", and highly 68 and a half inch reach. He trains out of Team Oyama, which I believe is based in Hawaii. So these guys right here are pretty evenly matched. And according to Tapology, though, it looks like Smoka is the big favorite, getting 88% of the votes. Um, I like Smoka to win the fight. As you can see here on the screen, if you're watching this on YouTube, if you're not watching this and you're listening to it, I like Smoka to win the fight. Uh, a little concern, though, it is the first fight in the prelim card. Um, it's down there on the first fight of the prelims for a reason. Um, so let's talk here about some details, some striking numbers on these guys. So Smoka's landing 4.44 strikes per minute compared to 4.39 for Morales. So just about the same exact output. Smoka's absorbing 3.74 strikes per minute. Morales is 4.06. So their striking numbers are almost identical. Um, for Smoka, he's taking down his opponents at a rate of 1.84 takedowns per 15 minutes or per three-round fight. For Vince Morales, it's 0.2 takedowns per 15 minutes. A little less activity there in the wrestling department for Morales. For takedown defense, Smoka's not very good at that. 31% takedown defense, Morales is 50%. So neither one of these guys is great at takedown defense. But for the takedown attempts, you'd expect that Luis Smoka would be a little busier in that area. Um, okay, look at some numbers here um, and some background information on the fighters. So just some stuff I un uncovered with Vince Morales. He made his pro debut in 2015. He lost in Dana White's contender series in 2018 to, to Domingo Pilarte. Not a terrible loss. Uh, matter of fact, he's got some quality losses in his career. He lost to Chris Gutierrez, who's 17-3-2, Benito Lopez, 10-1, Yadon Song, 18-5-1, and Domingo Pilarte, 8-3. Those are his four losses, um, or most recent four losses, so not so bad. Um, he's coming off a win off of Dra over Draco Rodriguez earlier this year. Unfortunately, Rodriguez was uh, let go by the UFC. So um, some concerns I have with Vince Morales, his fighting style. He is 2-3 in the UFC, okay? He's got a losing record in the UFC. A very low finish rate, okay? So his last three wins, all the way back to 2018, all those last three wins have all gone to decision. Now for Luis Smolka, he's had some problems in the past, personal problems, uh, specifically with drinking. I'm not sure if that's completely solved, but the word in the street is that he's doing better, has a handle on it, he is a family man, um, but he did have some serious problems with drinking in the past, which affected his ability to perform, and he got cut by the UFC at one point. This is his second time back with the UFC. His path to victory for him is usually involving a ground attack. Um, if the fight stays on the feet for all three rounds, then it's a toss-up. He's not a great boxer. He's not an amazing striker, but his ground game is pretty good. His grappling is pretty good. He was born and raised in Hawaii, as we mentioned. His toughest opponent that he's ever fought, I it, I had a look there, had a look closely, but I think it's Casey Kinney. Um, Casey Kinney submitted him in 2020, so about a year ago. Um, decent fighter, but that sort of gives you an idea of the level of competition for both these guys. They haven't fought any name-brand opponents yet, haven't beaten anybody name-brand as well. So, um, some positives here on Luis Smoka, some things about his game I like a lot. He's an excellent grappler. 
I love the grapplers. I love the wrestlers because when they get hurt, they can at least wrestle or grapple. Um, guys who can only box and strike, they're one-dimensional. Here's a fighter who's okay in the feet. He's balancing the feet. He's all right. But the grappling attack is an X factor. I like that part of his game. UFC experience. He's got 15 total UFC fights. Okay, This is the second time around the UFC, as we mentioned, but 15 total UFC fights. Um, that's good experience. And maybe this second time around, getting his shit together, only 30 years old, getting his personal life you know, in order. Um, so some issues on um, on Smoker, things that concern me, limited boxing ability, as I mentioned, and inconsistency in his win-loss record. And what I mean by that is when you look at his topology, it's like he'll win a few, and then it goes win-loss, win-loss, win-loss. And like currently right now, he's on one of those win-loss, win-loss streaks. Like He beat Draco Rodriguez, but then he lost to Chris Gutierrez, and he lost to Benito Lopez. Then he beat um, Zahabi, but then he lost to Yudong Song. Then he beat Justin Hugo, but then he lost to Domingo Pilarte. So he has not whipped off any kind of a winning streak of any kind since back 2017, 2018, before he joined the UFC. So consistency has been a big of a problem. Um, and again, his drinking problems were around that 2017, 2018 time period. So hopefully he shored that up. I like Smoker to win the fight um, as the first fight in the card. It is a good fight. It's 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 a good, well-matched fight. These guys both have tools. Um, they both can find a path to victory. Again, for Smoka, the easiest path to victory is ugly the fight up, do some grappling, grab him against the cage, bring him to the ground, get some top control, get some position control time. At 30 years old, look, this is it. He's got to be now moving into his prime years. He's got to be making a final move here. And for Vince Morales, it's the same thing. He's 31 years old. He also is in a situation where it's like, shit, I get off the pot. What are you going to do here? So very evenly matched fight. I like the fight. I'm going to ever so slightly edge Luis Smoka to win the fight. As a bet, ooh, don't know about betting on this fight. I, I don't feel like I have the world of confidence here on Luis Smoko to win. If I had to bet it, I would just take Luis Smoko straight up to win the fight, maybe like a half unit, um, probably by decision. Um, can Vince Morales upset, upset him? Yeah. At plus 120, it's not a big upset. This is a pick em fight for a reason, but I like Luis Smoko. I think the 15 years of UFC experience, I'm sorry, 15 years, the 15 total UFC fights are going to matter something. I think he's in the second part, like Luis Smoko 2.0 part of his career. Now, if I'm wrong, he goes in there and falls in his face, and he hasn't gotten it together. He hasn't learned. The past experience you know, wasn't helpful for him, but I think there's some value there on Smoko. Half unit sounds good. Not parlayable. Um, don't feel comfortable there. And as for any prop bets, I'll cover those in our prop show. That's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this one. Next up, we've got a heavyweight bout between Azamat Mirzakhanov from Russia and Jared Vandera from the United States. Now, initially, Azamat was supposed to fight Felipe Lins. Lins backed out, and so Jared Vandera is the late replacement here. Vandera goes by the mountain. He's 12-6 and six overall, 2-3 and three in his last five fights. Excuse me, 3-2 and two in his last five fights. Currently plus 175 on the money line. He hails from Hemet, California, 29 years old, 6'4 and high with 80-inch reach. So big, big heavyweight here at 6'4 with an 80-inch reach. He's trained in the past out of Team Quest Athletic Center and Dan Henderson's Athletic Fitness Center, but I heard he's not training at those gyms on a consistent basis anymore, so I'm not really sure where his main gym is at this time. For as for Azamat, who goes by the professional, he's 10-0 undefeated coming off his Dana White Contender Series win earlier this year. He's a big favorite here at minus 225. He's out of New Jersey, though he's originally from Russia, 35 years old, 5'10 in height with a 71-inch reach. So a 9-inch reach disadvantage there uh, for Azamat. And a uh, six-inch disadvantage of the height. So it's going to be a really big heavyweight versus more of a shorter, stockier guy. As for Ozma, he's coming out of K-Dojo Warrior Tribe. Now, the public votes here on Tapology have Mirzakhanov as the favorite, getting 87% of the votes here on Tapology. I agree. This is going to be a pretty quick breakdown, I think, uh, for Jared Vendera. Hey, man, I, I like a lot of things about the guy. Number one, he's very active. This will be his fourth fight this year. So he's a heavyweight guy. Um, that's pretty impressive. Now, on the flip side of it, 
He's been finished twice this year, like knocked out, kind of ugly knockouts, um, you know, bad TKOs where he was balled up, just taking a lot of punishment. And that was in um, February against Sergei Spivak and then um, in October. So just two months ago, he had grinded up by Alexander Romanov. And so, like, if he had lost a fight by decision or it was close, that's one thing. But he just got grinded out literally like a month and a half ago um, and second time this year. He looks to me like the kind of guy who's taking a lot of hits to the head, just to, sort of the way he carries himself. Um, and so... This is too much too soon. I like active fighters, but that's a big red flag for me. Now, he got a contender series win in 2020. Um, that's how he got into the UFC. That's Jared Vandera. That was over Harry Hunsucker, a guy you might recognize. He's been around. Um, but since then, he fought Spivak, got crushed. Romanov crushed him. He got a decision win over Justin Taffa, which was impressive. And that was an upset win for him. But this is just late replacement, a lot of red flags. I feel like Azamat Mirzakhanov is getting an easy dish here to, to eat up and just go to 11-0. Maybe the UFC knows what they're doing. They just want to pad this guy's record a little bit. He's 35, though. So for Azamat, like, it's now or never. He needs these wins right now. Jared's 29. He looks like he's 39, but he is the younger fighter here. Looking at their output numbers, interesting, right? Because Jared lands 4.5 strikes per minute. He is absorbing 5.24. Not great there. But it's a, it's, a, it's a strike and a half more than Azamat does per minute. Azamat's a three-minute, three-strikes-per-minute type of guy. 1.33 he's absorbing, so it's a really better, much better ratio. But I would have expected Osmond would have been a wrestler, right? Because that's a, that's a low-level output or lower, lower volume output. But his takedown numbers are just not there. He's not a big-time wrestler, has 0% takedown defense. We don't know much of his grappling activities. If he's training a lot with that, is he not? I'm not really sure. But just on the feet, two heavyweights, they're going to be swinging hard. Osmond's going to catch Jared Vandera at some point, and Jared Vandera's going to buckle up like a suitcase. Probably still not recovered from his last few fights. I don't believe he is. Now, could Jared Mandera clock Azamat? It's heavyweight. So if you're looking for just a, a dog to select, this is the one. Heavyweight fights are just the, the most volatile, right? It's two big guys. They're banging. Anyone can catch somebody with one punch and the fight. So from that standpoint, I think Jared Mandera has got a punching chance. He's got a fighter's chance. But this guy never looks like he's in the best shape. Looks like he's taking too many hits to the head as, as far as I'm concerned. You got an undefeated Russian here, Azamat Mirzakhanov, who's possibly being managed by good management because they're setting him up with good fights, the fights that he could win. Off a contender series, clearly the direction here is for Azamat to win the fight. At minus 225, I think there's value there. I believe there's parlay value. I believe it's straight up bet value. I'll take at least a unit of this straight up, and I'll parlay it as well. So that's the breakdown, guys. I'm not going to get too much into this fight. This one, to me, is pretty black and white. Um, I think the money line is, is great at this point. Wouldn't be surprised if it gets a little bit more like minus 300 by the time the actual fight takes off on Saturday. So I've got Azamat. I hate to go against the American Jared Vandera. Uh, nice guy. Man, he's active, but just too much too soon, you know? Next up in the car, we've got a lightweight bout between the American Chris Grutzmacher and Claudio Puelles from Peru. Puelles goes by El Nino. He's 10-2 overall, 4-1 his last five fights. The money line has these guys dead even at minus 110 on both sides. He's 25 years old, 5'11 in height with 72-inch reach. He's training out of the infamous Pitbull Martial Arts Center down there in Brazil. As for Chris Grutzmacher, who goes by the Grits, he's 15-4 overall, 2-3 in his last five fights. He hails out of Coconut Creek, Florida, where he trains out of American Top Team. 35 years old, so 10 years a senior here of Puelles. He's 5'8 in height, so 3 inches shorter. 68-inch reach, 4 inches uh, advantage there for Puelles in reach. Now, according to the Tapology Public Votes, looks like Puelles is getting 77% of the votes here. Only 23% of the votes coming in for Grutzmacher. I agree. I like Puelles to win the fight. I'll try to keep this breakdown short and sweet here. Um, some more numbers on these fighters, though, just before we move on to my notes here. Plus is landing 1.76 strikes per minute compared to 6.93 for Chris Grutzmacher. So when you look at those numbers right there, just the output right there, 
a lot more volume from Chris Grutzmacher. Now, that also lends to the way he fights, which is on his feet. He averages zero takedowns for 15 minutes. When you look at Poles, who's averaging 3.35 takedowns for 15 minutes, so a lot much more wrestling going on for Poles. Now, punches or strikes absorbed for Poles, 3.02. So that striking output versus um, what he's receiving is not a good ratio. Uh, for Chris Grutzmacher, he's landing 6.93, but absorbing 5.35. He's on the positive side there, but still a lot of strikes he's absorbing. We'll talk about that as we break down this film. Now, takedown defense, these guys are pretty much equal, 61%, 62% respectively. Um, let's talk here about my notes. So for Puelas, he is from Peru. He started off 7-1 in South America fighting regional promotions. And then in 2016, he um, jumped onto the roster for Ultimate Fighter Latin America. And that's sort of how he worked his way into the UFC. He began training Muay Thai at the age of 13 years old. Some positives about his fighting attack. He's an excellent wrestler, very good grappler. Look at the links in the description. You can see some prior fights on him. He takes down his opponents. He does it often and early in the fights. Um, he's very good at it. Um, and he's got very good heavy top pressure when he's on top of somebody. Um, against Levitt, for example, who he beat, Levitt is just pretty much a BJJ guy. That's all he can do. And in that fight, he was able to take Levitt down, keep top control, stay out of any kind of harm's way with any submissions, and just dominate the guy on the ground. He's on a three-fight winning streak, all UFC fights. He's 3-1 overall in the UFC. He's only been finished one time in his career. That was back in 2016 via TKO. He's a much younger fighter here. He's 10 years a junior of Chris Grutzmacher. So that's like positive and negative. Positive is that he's young, you know, full of piss and vinegar, not scared of anything, um, still approaching his prime years. The other side of it is, well, he's young and he's still kind of not really watching out for things and not very mature yet. So it kind of can go both ways. He's got a very high finish rate, okay? He's finished seven of his 10 wins. So seven of the 10 wins there for Claudio Puelas has been by finish. Now, some concerns I have about Puelas, he's got a bad loss to Martin Bravo. Martin Bravo, back in 2016, is, uh, was his debut. He lost that debut fight. Bravo went one and three in the UFC. He only won one UFC fight, and that was against Puelas. So not a great loss there. Overall, pretty low competition, all right? His hardest competition to date may be this fight here against Chris Grutzmacher. That says a lot in terms of how low-level competition he's been fighting in the past. Age and experience, it's it's a pendulum. On one side, he's young. He, he should be, you know, the guy with more energy. On the flip side of it, he's young. He's still learning how to do this thing, right? So Chris Grutzmacher, let's talk about him. He um, He's actually Chilean. His mother was born in Chile. She left along with her family, had to, you know, pursue political asylum. Um, I guess her gra his grandfather, his biological grandfather, Chris Grutzmacher, grandfather was actually killed in Chile um, during a political like, upheaval, protesting, trying to change the government. Um, just a little history lesson. Pinochet was one of the dictators who ran Chile for, for many, many years um, and a lot of atrocities, a lot of human rights violations. Anyway, so he's Chilean. This is actually a South American battle. If you think about it, Chilean versus Peruvian. Anyway, so he grew up in Arizona, was born in Arizona. At age five, his father, Jim Krutzmacher, uh, Grutzmacher, was shot and killed. And his father was an actually an army veteran, um, you know, a veteran, you know, U.S. veteran. And he was shot and killed and murdered in Arizona. So grew up fatherless, um, wrestled in high school, found his way through wrestling, made his pro debut in 2008. Um, he fought in Strike Force in World Series of Fighting. He suffered an ACL tear at some point in his career, had surgery, had it fixed. Um, took part in Ultimate Fighter 22, 2015. He went 3-1 and one during that uh, Ultimate Fighter series. He lost his first two UFC fights in 2017. His UFC record overall is two and three. Underdog in all of his last five fights. So that's interesting to note. In all of the last five fights for Chris Grusmacher, he has come in as either a slight dog or a significant dog. He's two and three during that patch. So he's upset the you know upset the numbers a few times. But just just put it out there. People have not thought he would win the last five fights. Um, some positives about Chris Grusmacher. One that we all know. His chin is made of something you can't really explain it. 
He looks like he's about to just keel over and die in there sometimes. The Rafa Garcia fight, man, he gets clipped early in that fight, and you're thinking, oh, this is not going to last. He takes Rafa to deeper waters. He wears Rafa out. Rafa gets, you know, just worn out punching this guy in the head. Um, and Chris Grutzmacher's got a chin. He's got a second gear for his cardio, so he looks tired like in round one, round two. But then by round three, he's got like another gear he shifts into, um, and his chin's amazing. Now, with that said, it's not great to fight that way. It's a dangerous fighting style, you know, constantly getting clipped and getting hurt. Um, and you look at the fights, even the fights that he wins, like that fight against Rafa Garcia, he almost got finished in round one. He almost got finished there. So, you know, when you look at the other fight there recently he had, he had a fight against Alexander Hernandez where he does get finished in round one. When you look at the Rafa Garcia fight and the Alex Hernandez fight, it's very similar in that he's hurt. He's hurt very early in the fight, um, except for Hernandez actually knocks him the hell out. It's an ugly, ugly loss. Um, anyway, um, his path to victory, it's going to sound weird, is wearing out his opponents who get tired of punching him in the head and who realize at some point this guy's not going to go away. And then they start, it starts to break their will. And then here comes Chris Grutzmacher. He starts to pour it on. He's got a severe concussion probably at that point, not even feeling anything. and just keeps moving forward. So it's not a good fighting style. There's obviously some problems with it. Um, you know, there's, there's obviously some things that he's going to get himself in some problems with with that. You know, so now some other things about Chris Grutzmacher that I want to point out here. Okay. Very bad head movement. That's why he's getting cracked. He doesn't move very fast. He's not a very athletic guy that way. He takes a lot more hits to the head than he needs to. Um, and he's actually taken a lot of punishment to the head already. And at 35 against a 25-year-old fighter, when does that start catching up? Um, you know what I mean? It's just, it's just too much, I, I feel like, at times. Of his last three fights, he started his career off 12-1, and one, mind you. right? Grutzmacher started off 12-1. and one. In his last three fights, he's had a hell of a hard time. He's now 15-4. and four. So started his career off 12-1. and one. He's now 15-4, and four, kind of running into a rough patch, 10 years older, very low finish rate. He's had one finish in his last four fights. So, look, all arrows are pointing here towards Claudio Plus to win the fight. If you like Chris Grutzmacher, it's because you got the feeling that he's going to outlast him, that uh, he'll take him to deeper waters. He'll do like what he did against Hoffa Garcia. Just not good. It's not good to depend upon that kind of thing. I, I don't like looking at that angle as a possibility for how he could win. I think Claudio Plus is still approaching his prime. He's still getting better. Um, and for me, he's the guy I think is going to win the fight. And at minus 110, even money, it's a bargain. Um, now, the films that we watched or the fights we watched on these two fighters, we watched the Levitt fight for Puelas. And the fight versus Silva. Those two links are in the description. For uh, the fights for Grusmacher, we, we watched the Hoffa Garcia fight and the Hernandez fight. Again, those both both those links are in the description. So you can watch those fights as well. Uh, take your. Take your Up, we've got a light heavyweight bout between two American fighters, Alonzo Menafield, who goes by Atomic, and William Knight, who goes by Nightmare. So Knight's 10-2 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights, currently a plus-140 underdog on the money line. He hails from Hartford, Connecticut, 33 years old, 5'10 in height with 73-inch reach. He trains out of Thornton Martial Arts. As for Alonzo Menafield, who goes by Atomic, he's 11-2 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights, minus-175 on the money line. He hails from Texas, 34 years old. Six foot in height with 76 inch reach. He's training at a Fortis MMA. So height and reach wise here, there's a slight advantage there for Alonzo Menafield. Age wise, these guys are just about the same age. And the money line is correct. I think this fight is a very close fight. Um, either one of these guys can have a path to victory. Now, according to the public vote here, Menafield is the favorite, getting about 70% of the votes here on Tapology. I agree. I do think Menafield should win the fight. Um, I want to emphasize should win the fight. Let's look here at the striking numbers in these guys. So Alonzo Menafield's landing 4.13 strikes per minute, absorbing 3.36 strikes per minute. So nice ratio there. 
As for Knight, he's landing 3.55 strikes per minute, absorbing 2.65. Now for wrestling takedowns, William Knight's taking down opponents at a rate of 2.36 takedowns per three-round fight. Alonzo Manifield's landing just under, or just about a half a takedown, excuse me, for, per 15 minutes. So much more activity there in the wrestling department for William Knight. Uh, for takedown defense, Manifield's getting 85% in his takedown defense. Very good. William Knight's defending takedowns at a 40% rate. So much better there in that department for Manifield. Um, we'll see how that shakes out as we break this film down. Now, let's look here at just some notes I've put together here on Menafield. Um, some personal background information of both these fighters. They both were raised in foster care as children. Um, for Menafield, he was as a, as a teenager. So at the age of 13, he had lost his father. His mother lo no longer could take care of him and his brother. They go into foster care, and it becomes um, a nightmare. Twelve different families over the course of his teenage years. Only ends up doing like two years of high school, but he excels in football. Goes to junior college, plays junior college football out in California. If you know anything about that scene, there's a lot of good junior college football out in California. Um, from there, he goes on and signs a scholarship to Texas A&M University Commerce. Not Texas A&M, the big one, but um, a smaller division, I think 1AA or Division II school. He graduates from there with a degree in criminal justice and then goes on to play in the CFL along with the Arena League. So the guy has a pretty darn good uh, path from college and into professional football. You know, gets out of a very tough situation. And when you see him and you see him interview him, doesn't seem like someone who came from that troubled of a path, you know, a past. I mean, so amazing kudos to him, you know, for making it out from all that. He is a married man with two sons. Um, so he's a family man. His most notable wins are against Paul Craig, Fabio Chiron, and Ed Herman. Now, I get it. Fabio Chiron, Ed Herman, even Paul Craig. That was a while ago. That was before the the, the Paul Craig 2.0. But I'm just pointing out these are the most, you know, dominant victories he's had in his, his history here. Now, so some positives here about Alonzo Menafield, very active fighter. He's a third fight this year. He's got a very hard lower leg kick. If you've ever seen this guy, his build, he's built like a bodybuilder. He's got a lot of power in his strikes. If he hits his opponent with too many lower leg kicks, that guy's going to have a hard time. Matter of fact, he had Ed Herman limping after just run one round. And by round two, Ed Herman's front leg was just all chopped up. Um, so he does a good job with the front leg, lower leg kicks on that lead leg. Um, I expect him to try that out here with William Knight. He's 4-2 in the UFC, and he's on a two-fight winning streak. Only been finished one time in his career, and he got he got KO'd by St. Prue back in 2020. Um, that fight's in the description there. You'll find the link there for that. And he just kind of got caught off guard. You know, St. Prue, um, say what you want about him, but he's got a hook. He catches this guy with a left hook, and he wasn't ready for it, and he got knocked out. That was the only time in his career. He's got a high finish rate. So believe it or not, Alonzo Menafield has finished 10 of his 11 wins. Yeah, you got to double take. Look at that on the topology. He's finished 10 of his 11 wins, so very high finish rate there for Alonzo Menafield. He's fought more UFC fights than his opponent, so he's got a little more UFC experience here than William Knight. His height and reach should be an advantage. He's got a nice striking game. Now, some of the concerns I have here on Alonzo Menafield. He's got a very muscular build. So does Knight. I get it. But that very big, stocky, muscular build, at times it lends to losing energy and having cardio dumps at some point. So it's always a concern. Concern for both fighters. His experience in the octagon, it still is limited. I mean, he is only 11-2 overall, 13 total fights. He has had some adversity. Obviously, got knocked out by St. Prue. But we haven't really seen him. Um, I mean, he needs more fights. That's the bottom line. At the age of, you know, what? He's 30, 34 years old. Doesn't have a lot of experience for that age. Um, you want to see him get some more experience. And that's partially because he had a whole pro football career, right? So he started this thing a little bit late. I'll say that though he started fighting late, He's a pretty smooth fighter. He's got pretty good boxing technique. And for his build, very stocky, he's not very robotic or as robotic as you would expect. Um, I think his prior athletic experience actually helps him in some ways. Competing at a high level, coming from you know poverty background and having grown up in foster care, 
all these ingredients to making him, I think, a more well-rounded person and a person who appreciates where he's at. His bad losses. Okay, I want to point out some of his bad losses here. He was favored by minus 150, more or less a pick him to beat St. Prue, and he got KO'd in that fight. Okay, now St. Prue, just to put it in perspective, he's 25 and 16 overall. He's 3 and 6 in his last nine fights, and at that time of that fight, St. Prue was 37 years old, okay? Um, so, yeah, it's not a good loss there. He was favored at minus 240 against Devin Clark, and he lost that fight via decision. Clark is 12 and 6 overall. He has two fights, his last two fights in a row. Um, he has lost two fights in a row. The bottom line is, um, you know, Clark is kind of at the tail end of his career. So he lost back-to-back -back fights here in 2020 against these two guys, and he was favored in both those fights. I don't like that. He can get very flat-footed when he engages. So what I mean by that is when he gets to a situation where he feels like it's fight or flight or he needs to, like, dig in, he gets very flat-footed. There's no lower, lower body movement. He's just swinging Mike Tyson-style um, off-balance. That's how he got clipped by St. Prue. He came in a little off balance, didn't expect it. Um, he's a tough guy. He's strong. He probably thinks he could take a punch from time to time. I, I get that. But when he digs his feet in and starts swinging, he gets very off balance, and I don't like that about his technique. Now, as for William Knight here, so we mentioned it as well, he did also grow up in foster care, and for him, it was even younger. He was at the age of seven years old. He was going to be being abused by his stepfather. Goes to the state department system along with his younger brother. Eventually, family get him moved out of the foster care system. He moves him with a grandmother. He ends up getting diagnosed with ADHD. He's put on Ritalin. Gets bullied as a kid. Um, he describes the, the medicine as making him very zombie-like, and kids made fun of him for that. He ends up finding his path through wrestling in high school. He starts wrestling at the at the um, at the bequest of his father, who's like back in his life trying to you know motivate the kid. He gets into wrestling. It's a turning point in his life. He wrestles through high school. And it seems as if, you know, things are in a better place. And then he takes a 10-year coma. Not a real coma. But by his words, for 10 years after high school, he's on the couch playing video games, gets up to 300 pounds, has like three or four slip discs in, the back, in his back that have to have like surgery. Just a whole different version of the person you see now who's in incredible shape in the whole nine. So he talks about that, you know, obviously depression in the whole nine. He goes and finds an old picture by mistake while just in his apartment or whatever one day, finds a picture that falls out of like an old memory book from high school, like old yearbook. It's a picture of him wrestling. And it just hits him like an epiphany. Like, what have I done for the last 10 years? What am I doing? And he goes and starts training at a local mixed martial arts gym. And as they say, the rest is history. So kind of a unique story. These guys both have had unique backgrounds. You know, they've both fought only, what, 12 fights for one fighter, 13 fights for the other. They're both built like brick shit, house, brick shit houses. I mean, these guys are very, very similar. All right, so I end up, whatever, pulling that all back around to some other positive things about him. So his most notable wins in his career are also over Fabio Chirant. They both beat Fabio Chirant. They both finished him in the first round. Second biggest win for him is Jamel Jones back in CES back in 2019. That's when he got that win there. Some positive things about Mr. Knight here. He's an active fighter, like, like Alonzo Menafield. It's his third fight this year. His personal journey, like Menafield, I believe adds that the ingredients for greatness, the struggle, right? Overcoming, okay? High finish rate. He also has finished all but one of his wins. So nine of his 10 wins, he's finished those fighters. Take the under here, guys, right? This fight probably does not go the distance. He's only got two losses in his career and both those losses against guys that are current UFC fighters. He's had amateur wins over Matt Semmelsberger and Jorgen DeCastro. I noticed that on his amateur record. Now, some concerns I have here with Knight. His wrestling and takedown defense are not great. Obviously, his numbers reflect that at a 40% takedown rate. But when he got, like, dragged all over the mat by Jung, it was weird because Jung is, like, a, a pretty strong fighter. He's obviously got some size advantage there on William Knight, height-wise height -wise that is. 
But you just expect William Knight, as strong-looking as he was, or is, to be able to do better in that fight. So that was a glaring issue here. He clearly is not a very good wrestler. He looks like a wrestler, but he's got to shore up that part of his game. His cardio didn't look good against Jung either. That's just one fight, so I don't want to lay it on too thick for one fight. But it also became an issue of where once he was down on his back, bigger guy laying on him, he looked tired. He looked gassed out. By the end of round two, he just looked like he, you know, his will was broken. His fatigue was showing. So, you know, experience is an issue for both fighters, right? I mentioned it as for mental field, as I mentioned it again for William Knight. They just haven't fought many people. They haven't really, really been tested. Um, they've lost against okay level opponents, but nothing amazing. Um, he got t he got actually KO'd by Tafan Ninjukoi Ninjukoi back to 2019 in Cage Fury. Uh, not the worst knockout loss. Tafan Ninjukoi is a pretty decent fighter. He's obviously in the UFC. So, yeah, um, the fights we looked at when I studied filming these guys, I looked at the fight against Herman for Alonzo Menafield back in 2021, earlier this year, where he chops the hell to the leg. The fight against Charant, where he finishes Charant. The fight against Clark, that's a good fight to look at. The link's in the description. You can watch that fight on, on for Menafield. And that kind of shows you where at times, you know, he doesn't meet he doesn't reach his full potential, right? Um, he had some issues. Uh, the fight against of, of, Vince, of Vince St. Prue, I would watch that fight too. The link's in the description. What I didn't like about that fight before he gets finished was he couldn't do much. His volume was so low. Like he couldn't find range. He was circling. The foot movement was good. But he couldn't do anything. And it looked at times like he was intimidated, maybe. Um, but very hesitant, put it that way. So whether he was intimidated or not, I don't know. I'm not in his head. But he looked hesitant. He was not throwing much volume. And it was almost like he just got out of rhythm. Um, he got tagged a few times by St. Bruce. And maybe he was a little bit cautious at that point. Um, but in that fight, I didn't like that version of Menafield. I like the version of Alonzo Menafield where he's leading the dance, where he's the one landing some hard lower leg kicks, where he's putting his pace and pressure on his opponent. I mean, he's built so well. This guy looks like a monster. He's got to use that to his advantage, I believe, if he's going to be more successful. Um, as for William Knight, the fights we looked at on him, we looked at the fight against Charant. Again, they, again, they both be Charant. And the fight against Jung. If you watch the fight against Jung, you're never going to bet on William Knight because that was just so disappointing. I remember I had money on William Knight that night, so that was not great. Um, but look, these guys, you know, pound for pound, they're very similar. There's just a lot of similarities. Both started fighting later. Um, you know, both have personal stories that we've talked about. Uh, both are in excellent looking shape, but they've got that issue of like maybe they're too muscle bound. So cardio can become an issue later in the fight. If this fight goes to round three, for example, and we get to that point where these guys get a little desperate, you're going to see a highlight knockout. These guys throw in a lot of power. You can see they have a lot of power, but they get a little tired, a little sloppy, and I can see somebody taking a really, really hard shot. I'm not sure either side here. I'm going to side with Alonzo Menafield. This card's filled with a lot of dogs that I like, but in this situation here, I do think that Alonzo Menafield is the slightly better fighter. I think if he's on his A game on Saturday night, he should get the win here. That's the breakdown, guys. Good luck. Next up, we've got a strawweight bout in the women's division. Actually, the only women's fight in the card. Two American fighters, Mallory Martin and Cheyenne Vlismas. Yes, not Cheyenne Bays, Cheyenne Vlismas. The name change. We'll talk about it here when we break this film down. Anyway, Cheyenne goes by the Warrior Princess. She's 6-2 overall. Currently quite a favorite here at minus 190 in the money line. She's, she's from Las Vegas, Nevada, though she actually was born in Florida. Well, when I say from Las Vegas, she's just based out of Las Vegas. She trains in the Fortis MMA, but she's actually originally from Florida. So Cheyenne Vlismas is 26 years old, 5'3 in height with 63-inch reach. Now, as for Mallory Martin, she's 7-4, 3-2 in her last five fights, currently plus 160 in the money line. 
She's based out of Denver, Colorado. She was actually born and raised in Denver. She trains out of Elevation Fight Team. 27 years old in 10 months, so just about 28 years old, almost two years older here than Cheyenne Vlismas. She's 5'4 and height with 64 inch reach. So height and reach wise, just about the same. Slight reach advantage there for Martin, slight height advantage. Now on the public vote here for Tapology, Vlismas is taking 84% of the votes here. So Cheyenne Vismas, Vlismas, Bays, whatever. Uh, the public loves her to win the fight. I think she's the more skilled fighter. I, I do think she's got the overall, you know, better tool toolbox to work with here. But man, there's some stuff going on outside the cage. We'll get to it. Um, I think it's definitely going to be a factor. Looking at some of the numbers here. So Mallory Martin's landing just under four strikes per minute, but she's absorbing 5.53 strikes per minute. That's not a good ratio. She's actually, I mean, that's pretty pretty much straight up. She's landing four strikes, absorbing. Five and a half. It's just not a good ratio. As for Cheyenne Vlismas, she's landing 4.3 to strikes per minute and absorbing 1.77. So much better ratio. Very good ratio. Actually, one of the best ratios I've seen in a while. That's, that's impressive. So takedown offense here. So for Cheyenne, she's landing 0.48 takedowns per 15 minutes. So just about a half a takedown per three-round fight. This is a three-round fight. As for Mallory Martin, she's landing 3.37 takedowns per 15 minutes. So much more active in the wrestling department there for Martin. Now, for takedown defense, though, Vlismas has 60% takedown defense, whereas Martin has 25%. So a little better there for Cheyenne. So looking at some of the notes here that I've gathered on these fighters, let's start here with Cheyenne. Let's talk about her first. So born in St. Petersburg, Florida, Okay, lived in Texas, picked up everything, her and her boyfriend, J.P. Bays, who became her husband, moved to Las Vegas, you know, uprooted their whole life, didn't have a lot of money. We wanted to focus on their training full-time. They were both were at LFA. They were both fighting at LFA together. They were partners at that time, you know, were, were dating, whatever, engaged. And then both got contracted to UFC. So kind of a nice, you know, unique story. Um, she started karate when she was three years old, so really young. Got into mixed martial arts like taekwondo and whatnot as a you know, young kid. At the age of uh, 15, she was actually already studying mixed martial arts, okay? At the age of 17, she gets kicked out of high school because she's fighting. And so her family, instead of, like... I guess, trying to persuade her to stay away from the violence. They actually encourage her, help her get, you know, into mixed martial arts more, more training, whatever else. Um, four days after her 17th birthday, she takes her first amateur fight. So it's just in her loins. When you hear her talk in her interviews, um, she just likes violence. She enjoys fighting. She truly enjoys the whole process. She likes to be in the octagon. Um, and she gave an interview recently where she said, like, she really feels more comfortable in the octagon than any place else. So some positive things here about Cheyenne's fighting style or her career She's very active. This will be a third fight this year. She's coming off of a TKO win in the first round where she really knocked the hell out of this girl. Um, it's 115 pounds, women's division. So to knock somebody out and finish them TKO-wise, that is very impressive. Um, this is a positive and a negative, but she's a little crazy. Like she had a moment there against uh, Canejo when they fought where the fight didn't go her way. She got taken down by some neck cranks, neck twists, whatever. Um, you know, just, just it couldn't get out of these, couldn't get out of the head, headlock. It was just, it was just awful fight, very, very frustrating. And the fight was over, and she's like in the octagon yelling to the girl, like, "I'll meet you in the parking lot. I'll follow you home, bitch." You know, whatever. So she's got a gangster side of her, like she's a little gangster. She's edgy. Um, one thing that bothers me, and it's just maybe I don't know, just just maybe it's an old school quality of mine. Whenever she gives interviews, she always finds a way to talk about her financial issues. Like it's, it, there's a reoccurring theme there. Like she's always having problems with her money or wants to always talk about how she's had money problems before. It, hopefully that's something that's in the past. I just get this impression it's not in the past. Um, it's still lingering within her life. So I'm not sure if it's a money management issue. Um, does she really come from poverty? So now that she has money a little bit, you know, she's, you know, really happy about it. 
Um, anyway, it just seems to be a reoccurring theme when she's talking in her interviews. It just comes off to me in her interviews, and she is young, that she is very young. You know, She's definitely you know, still figuring things out. Now, some very big concerns, and I want to shout out uh, Cody Saptic. Um, you guys probably have heard him. He's got a great channel going. He's also on Dogger Pass with, um, with, with Paul. He does with Paul, Paul Shaughnessy. He does a bunch of stuff. He's just amazing. But I listened to his breakdown before finishing this breakdown, and he mentioned an interview recently, just two weeks ago, with Cheyenne Blismas <clears throat> or Cheyenne Bays, whatever. I put the link in the description here for you guys to go and watch that interview. There's an actual video, video interview her doing like a video interview over a phone or whatever, FaceTiming, whatever the case may be. It is concerning. It is concerning. Let me tell you that. And again, this wasn't my find. I'm giving the full credit here to CJ Saptic. This was impressive that he found this. Only two weeks ago, she tested positive, I guess, recently for COVID. She talked in the interview how she's having a hard time still breathing. Um, she's got two weeks to clear this up and how, oh, I'm so thankful I have two weeks to work on getting my breathing right. Um, it's plenty of time. Um, you know, I, I've had some fevers in the morning. Um, I've had some symptoms, but they've gone away. It's been like a few days. I'm feeling a little better now. Uh, I'm getting tested tomorrow. I hope, hope it's negative. Um, you know, I, I had to take this fight kind of, you know, shorter notice and just, and just all this stuff that just doesn't sound good. Um, you know, even the way she described the person she's fighting, she's like, well, if I saw her out in public, if I, she saw, if I saw her in a parking lot right now, you know, I'd fight her. So, you know, I'm ready to fight. I'm always ready to fight. I feel comfortable fighting. So it's like not a full camp. Um, you, you're coming off of a COVID, you know, it, you know, situation, you've had some symptoms, you're talking about your lungs, your breathing. It's all round three is going to be a motherfucker for her. If she gets to round three of this fight, like, I'm just already thinking like, how is this going to work for her? So, um, she's just like doing this. And I almost feel like the way she gave the interview was like, even if I lose, it's no big deal, guys. Like I'm doing the UFC a favor. I'm a company woman. Like I'm, I'm out here to fight. You can call me any day of the week. I'm ready to go. And it's like on one side of it. Great. I'm sure for the boss man and people who make the fights for UFC, like it's great having fighters that are ready to go all the time. It just doesn't add up well when you fall to six and three here, maybe instead of getting ready for your next fight and being ready prepared in the whole nine. So that whole COVID thing in that interview, watch that interview because that was like an eye popper. And I saw the interview. I'm like, there's no way she should be minus 190 just because the interview, just because what she says in the interview, um, it's super duper concerning. You could see that she's stressed. She says that she's got some things going on in her personal life. She mentioned that there's some stuff going on right now. Didn't didn't elaborate, but I'm going to elaborate. Her last name is Vlismas now. It's not Bays. She was married to JP Bays. Her one of her teammates helped her coach, you know, corner man, moved from Texas with him to Nevada. I believe they bought a place together, townhouse or something like that. They bought a home together. So I'm not sure what's going on. She talks about the interview that she has a friend staying with her now, like a girlfriend who's not staying like permanent, but like I have a friend staying with me for a few days, whatever, like like woman time, bonding, whatever the case may be. Um, so did they break up? I mean, breakup is one thing, but she's changed her name back to her maiden name. So that suggests possibly a divorce. I don't know. I stalked her Instagram page a little bit, tried to find some stuff there. Couldn't uncover much. I mean, I did still, I still still picture, still see pictures of, uh, of JP Bays, her ex or current or a strange husband. I don't know. Um, so this is just a reality. This stuff is all going on right now. And so these distractions could play a big factor in her head, um, along with, you know, the, the illness, um, the late notice. Um, now one more thing about her that's concerning when she fought Conejo, she got headlocked and taken down and tripped and could not solve this for three rounds for three rounds. It was repetitive. Mallory Martin averages 3.3 takes three, seven takedowns per 15 minutes. 
if she can just get two takedowns here, Cheyenne's proven that she also has a hard time getting back up. She could not get up once Gunnell took her down. So for Martin here, if she can get two takedowns in an earlier part of round one or two or three, she could steal those rounds by position control, maybe keep down Cheyenne. We get to round three now. Cheyenne Vlees was just coming off of COVID. She's already kind of lobbed an excuse out there for you guys. Like, I'm having, I got this lung thing. I can't breathe. She's supposed to get an inhaler. Supposed to see a doctor. And when she's doing the interview, please listen to it. She's like, oh, I got two weeks. Like, I'm so thankful that I have this two weeks. And I'm like, what? Two weeks? Mallory Martin has been training for six to eight weeks. She's had a full camp for this. Um, so just a lot of red flags here. Let's talk here about Mallory Martin. I already <laughs> just spoke way too much about Cheyenne Vlees. Anyway. So for Martin, she made her pro debut in China back in 2016 for Kunlun Fight MMA 7. Um, from there, she went to Invicta and Legacy Fighting Alliance. So she's got some pretty good experience. She's known for her toughness. So Mallory Martin is not the most skilled fighter, doesn't have amazing BJJ. She's not amazing at anything, but she's got a hell of a chin, very tough. She fought for a good portion of her career with a torn ACL. I guess she just didn't even know. Finally got it fixed at some point. Um, if you look at one of her fights, I'm trying to think of the fight offhand here. Well, I'm trying to think of which one it was, but a recent fight where she gets cold clocked. I mean, she gets high, yep, the fight against Hannah Cyphers. Yes. In round one of that fight against Hannah Cyphers, watch that fight. The link's in the description. Go watch it yourself. She gets hammered in round one, gets knocked down. I was surprised the ref didn't stop it. In women's fight like that, she gets just clipped and gets knocked down, survives it. Great survival skills, shows a great chin, toughness, um, just a real gritty fighter. She's known for being very tough. She's a brown belt in BJJ under Matt Sims. Again, she's based out of Colorado, born, born, born and raised in Colorado, so she's from Colorado. Um, some pros on her as a fighter. <clears throat> very active. It'll be a second fight this year. She fought once in 2020 and three times in 2019, so again, very active fighter. Uh, very durable, strong chin, as we mentioned. High finish rate. She has finished now four of her last six wins by either sub or TKO. And again, in this division, you're like, wow, 115 pounds? Yeah, four of her last six wins, she has finished those opponents. That's pretty impressive. Now, some of the cons or some of the negatives here on Mallory Martin. She got submitted twice in her last three fights. Okay, so she's one and two in her last three fights. Um, these are the first two times she ever got finished in her career. So 18 total fights between her 11 pro fights and seven amateur fights. Of that entire period of time, she would not been finished by anybody. And then last three fights, she got finished twice. So obviously, the raising competition. Her last three fights were in the UFC. Um, her boxing is not sharp. And her stamp defense is definitely not to be desired. So that's an area where head movement is lacking. Um, doesn't have her guard up enough. A really good striker. A sharp striker. And, and JP, you know, she's, I mean, I just call her JP. Cheyenne's a pretty good striker. Pretty good boxer. It's probably one of the best parts of her game. That could be a problem here. Um, if she doesn't get her head movement, doesn't get some takedowns, if it's forced to be a stand-up fight um, and Cheyenne can keep it on the feet, that could be a problem because her boxing is not sharp and her boxing defense is not great. Um, I mentioned she's 1-2 and two in the UFC. Um, again, the level of competition, that's that's a factor, right? She was on a five-fight winning streak before she jumped into the UFC and then bunch gets UFC, two losses and three fights, okay? The combined record of her last three opponents is 38-14. and 14. All right, so she got finished by two of those last three opponents. Their combined record is 38 and 14. Not amazing record, but, you know, decent. The record of her combined five opponents before she comes into the UFC, those five fights, was 21 and 14. 
So she just has not been fighting very good competition. There's no other way of putting it. So Mallory Martin's been fighting lower-level competition, and when she fought some decent fighters like Verna Dejanova and Pollyanna Viana, she got beat up and got, got finished, got submitted. That was it. So I fear that any level of competition that's going to be raised, and I think JP, I'm sorry, I keep calling her JP, Cheyenne uh, Vlismas is a raise in competition. That's a problem. If you've got Cheyenne Vlismas or Cheyenne Bays, whatever, in a full camp, Without this nonsense going on where she's, I don't know, maybe going through a divorce, maybe going through a separation, uh, seems to still have some, some financial stress. Um, if she's just fighting and training and, and really focused, I, you know that she's going to win this fight. But boy, those factors, you, you got to consider them. And there's no way you want to put minus 190 to two to one money on someone who has these real factors. Now, I can't remember the name of the fighter. If you can remember the name of the fighter I'm talking about. Please comment in the, in, the, in the comment below. There was a fighter recently, a female fighter, who was going through some stuff where people had talked negatively about her. And they were like, oh, she gets arrested. The cops come to the gym all the time. Uh, she steals stuff. She gets into car accidents. And I can't remember her name offhand. But everything leading up to the fight was like, oh, she's got all this stuff going on around her. And then she went in there and finished the girl and looked amazing. And post-fight, she was like, yeah, you know, people talking shit about me. And I got my, shit, my, I got my head screwed on tight. I know what I'm doing. Does that happen here with Cheyenne? Maybe, but boy, that interview was so suspect. And so again, watch the interview. The link's in the description, along with links for the prior fights of both these fighters. That's the breakdown, guys. I think if you're betting the fight here, you absolutely have to consider this as a dogger pass. I'm considering it a dogger pass. I'm going to put a little bit of money here on Mallory Martin to spoil the day for Cheyenne. I like Cheyenne. I think she's a fighter. She's a struggler. You know, she's you know pick her you know pick herself up off the type of ground type of person, and she seems like she's trying to make it in life. But man, she's like going this way and that way and, and just a lot of questions right now about what's going on outside the octagon. This is not the best version of her. This is not her fully focused with everything around her grounded. You got a very young person, only 26 years old. And when you hear her talk and you hear the interviews, I feel like you really could see that and you could sense it that she's really still trying to find her way. So not the right time to be finding, finding your way, not the kind of career to be finding your way in an octagon. For Valerie Martin, she's pretty damn tough, man. She's tough. She can grapple. Now, could JP, I keep calling her JP, could Cheyenne like, clock her and hurt her? Yeah, she could do that, but she's already proven, Mallory's proven that she can get hurt, she can recover, it's going to take more than one punch. If this fight goes into late round two, round three, recovering from COVID for, for Cheyenne is going to be a factor. You know, so maybe bet the fight live. If the fight gets to round two, you're thinking at that point, see what happened. Mallory looked in round one. Did she survive it? Is she bled it up? Is she beat up? Um, is Cheyenne about to knock her out? Because Cheyenne's strong. She's tough. I mean, she's got some good hands. But can she explode in round two and three when she's breathing harder, when she's off an inhaler recently? Two weeks, she said. She's got two weeks to get ready for this. So that's the breakdown, guys. Sorry I got a little long-winded there, but I like Mallory Martin. Right, we have another late addition here to the card. Darian Weeks versus Brian Barberena. This is going to be a welterweight bout on the prelim card at 170 pounds. Brian Barberena goes by Bam Bam. He's 15 and 8 overall, 2 and 3 in his last five fights. The money line right now has these guys as a pick em. Minus 120 for Brian Barberena, plus 100 here for Darian Weeks. Um, Barberena is from Glendale, Arizona, 32 years old, 6 foot in height with 72 inch reach. He trains out of MA Lab, so very good gym. As for Darian Weeks, very unknown here. This guy's from regional scene, uh, first UFC fight. Uh, didn't take part in Dana White Contender Series or Ultimate Fighter, nothing like that. So there's a lot of unknowns here with Darren Weeks. He is undefeated at 5-0. He hails from Sedalia, Missouri, 28 years old, so a very young fighter, four years younger than Brian Barberena. He's 5'11 in height. We don't have a reach number on him. 
He's out of Hulet House MMA, which I've never heard of that gym. So, yeah, a lot of variables here for weeks. Um, going to just make this a really quick breakdown for you guys. I didn't spend a lot of time on it. Didn't watch a lot of film. Um, had pretty much finished the entire episode here for all of our film uh, for this for this card. And this was at last minute, so I had to dive back in here. But the one thing I found and the one thing that kind of popped out to me was that Brian Barbarena, he has been favored to win his last three fights. He's won in three in those fights. So against Randy Brown in 2019, so two years ago, he fights Randy Brown, and in that fight, he was favored at minus 250. At some point, it was minus 300 before the line closed. Three to one favorite. He loses that fight. He gets knocked out in round three. Okay, so what does that tell me? It tells me, well, the numbers have been off on this guy. Uh, the Vegas has not, you know, sort of gotten him correct recently. That's just one fight. No big deal. Okay. But now looking at his last fight against Jason Witt. That was back in July of this year. He fought Jason Witt. He was favored to win. He was a minus 270 favorite when it closed. Pretty significant, almost three to one. He lost that fight by decision to Jason Witt. Okay, so it's a reoccurring theme with Brian Barberena that he's favored to win fights, significantly favored to win fights, and he goes in there and he lays a goose egg, um, doesn't perform. Now, his recent fight topology, I'd say, you know, take a glance at it. It's, it's not great. Okay, you're talking about a fighter here who's dropping a lot of fights. A matter of fact, I want to say that he's like, what, one, two, three, three and five in his last eight fights, okay? Three and five since he fought Colby Covington back in 2016. Now, you can say, okay, he went to distance with Colby Covington. Yeah, that is good. Distance with Colby Covington is good. Got finished by Vincente Luque. Got finished by Randy Brown. Went to distance with Leon Edwards. Again, good. Distance with Jason Witt. Again, not so bad. But that's at the peak of his career at this point. Brian Barbarina, who goes by Bam Bam, is a tough guy. He's a tough cookie. Um, durable from the standpoint that he's not going to give up. I'm going to give you a lot of effort. We don't know this guy, Darren Weeks. We don't know what Darren Weeks is about. We don't have enough information on him. He can come in here and gas out, which the film I watched on him, he looked a little gassed early in the fight. Um, and that was his last fight, right? I want to make sure I got this correct here. His last fight against, um, that link's in the description, against uh, Craig Fairley. Not Tony Woods. That was a boxing match that he lost in April of this year by split decision. But his last MMA bout was in February of this year against Craig Fairley. Who's Craig Fairley? Well, Craig Fairley is just a can. He's three and five overall. They stood toe to toe for a little while. It ends in round two because at some point Weeks gets to him and pounds him out. But in round one, like it looks like Weeks is tired. It looks like he doesn't have the energy to finish the fight. Could have been finished in round one. This guy, Craig Fairley, was just a can waiting to be finished. So my concern with a guy like Darian Weeks is that maybe for that first 30 seconds to a minute, he looks good. Excuse me, he's got some explosiveness. He's athletic, you know, um, and then he starts to fade. And you got a guy like Brian Barbarina, who, excuse me, has no quit in him. He's going to go ahead and give it all he can and basically push the tempo for the full three rounds. So this can get to an ugly close decision. At that point, I wouldn't want to be holding a ticket there for Brian Barbarina. I just have a lot of questions about his fighting style, losing fights that he's favored to win. And we just don't know Darian Weeks. So this fight right here, you're better off just looking at it. You're better off just pass all around, not to bet on it. But if you're going to have to bet... Take the plus money. This is the current theme on this card here, a reoccurring theme on this card. The plus money is out there. A lot of close fights. That plus 120 is obviously more value than minus 140. Um, with that said, I don't have a good play here either way. I'd stay away from this fight. It was late addition to the card. A lot of questions about this guy, Darian Weeks. Um, you can make an argument that, well, he's a last-minute you know, addition. Uh, Brian Barbarin has been training for this fight. Uh, not this fight, but he knew he was going to be on this card. He's more prepared. Here's a guy who's just coming off the street, basically. Has never fought Bellator, never fought in UFC, never fought in a high-level promotion. And he's going to get you know cooked in there against a guy like Brian Barberina, who's been in there with guys like, you know, we mentioned it. He's been in the ring with guys like Colby Covington. He's been in the ring with guys like, you know, um, 
uh, Vincent DeLuke, right? Jason Witt, um, Leon Edwards, you know, um, he's been in there with some decent guys, Worley Alves. So there's a lot more fighter experience on the side of Brian Barberina. But with all that said, here's a guy we just don't know about. And at plus 120, take a stab there. If you're going to bet in the fight, bet on the side of Darian Weeks. When I do my parlay at the end of the, um, at the week, my lottery parlay, I'm going to have Darian Weeks in a lottery parlay. Must take the plus money. That's my thinking. So that's our breakdown, guys. Sorry I didn't get more into it. But again, it's a late addition to the card. I had already finished up everything else. And so I had to kind of run back around, knock out some uh, film study on these guys. But that's my take on it, guys. Good luck with this fight. Next up, we got a flyweight bout between Zaga Zamagulov from Kazakhstan and Manal Kopp from Portugal. Kopp goes by Starboy. He's 16 and 6 overall. 3 and 2 in his last five fights. Currently quite a favorite of the money line at minus 250. He's 28 years old. 5 foot 5 in highway 68 inch reach. He's training out of AKA Thailand. As for Zagas, he goes by Zako. He's 14 and 5 overall. 3 and 2 in his last five fights. Plus 200 in the current money line. 33 years old, 5'4", and height with 66-inch reach. He's out of Erkin Kush. He's also training out of Arlington MMA Pro Team. So a slight height and reach advantage there for Cop. Looking at the public vote here on Tapology, Cop is the favorite here, getting 78% of the votes on Tapology. I think that Zagas is going to be an upset here. I think, you know, the guy's got some experience. Uh, we'll break it down in more detail, but I like Zagas to win the fight. Looking at some of the striking numbers here in the fighters, Zagas is landing 3.71 strikes per minute. He's absorbing 4.23, so not a good ratio. He's obviously receiving more punches or kicks than he's dishing out, so not great there. As for Manel Kopp, he's landing 4.21 strikes per minute, a little busier. He's absorbing 4.09, so he's a positive, at least in his striking department, versus what he's receiving. For takedown offense, Zagas is landing 0.86 takedowns per 15 minutes compared to Manel Kopp, who's landing just about a takedown and a half per 15 minutes, so Manel Kopp is the busier wrestler. For defense, though, for takedown defense, Zagas is get defending at 80% clip, whereas Manel Kopp's defending at a 50% clip. So a little better there. Both fighters have had three fights in the UFC. Those numbers are based on those three fights in the UFC. So Zagas is a little bit better defending the takedowns. So looking here at some notes in the fighters, let's start here with uh, Zagas first. So Zagas, he actually lost his UFC debut back in 2020 to Raul Piava, um, but that's a good fighter. You know, he had a good account of himself, went the distance, um, and lost a close decision. He also lost to um, Amir Albazi, and that's a guy who's 14-1, and one, a very good fighter as well. Um, so notable losses, but good losses, good quality losses. His most notable wins have probably would be against Tyson Nam and Jerome Rivera, his last fight. Doesn't say very much, but just, you know, keep it at 100 there. Um, some positives here about Zagas. Um, he's only been finished one time in his career, okay? He got finished by TKO six years ago. So the guy's very durable, very tough, has fought some pretty good fighters. Um, at quality levels, um, good promotions. So he's very durable, not easy to get out of there. His wrestling and grappling, he's built like a wrestler. You know, he's very good in that department. So he can survive guys who are trying to submit him. Um, he's got some submission skills himself. He doesn't wrestle a lot in terms of, you know, pursuing a takedown per se. Um, but he can defend takedowns really well. He can find himself in positive positions. He can reverse, reverse positions on the ground. So he's just overall good wrestler. He uses feints and changes levels, um, especially early in the fight when he's fresh. Um, so he's not a standing target, so he's good on his feet in terms of his standing defense. He's moving, you know, he's up and down. He's giving the look as if he's going to get a takedown or just changing levels. So I do like that about him. He gets up quickly. So if he gets taken down, his stand-up game is good. He's feisty. He gets back up quickly. doesn't stay on his back for lengthy periods of time. He's a very active fighter. Third fight for him this year. So third fight in 2021. He did fight, I think, once or twice in 2020. But 2020, 2019 was tough for all fighters because of COVID. But again, very active fighter. Um, notably, again, he went the distance against Piava and Albazi. Those two guys combined are 35 and 4. 
So again, just a note there, very durable fighter, right? The distance, he went six total rounds with Piave and Albazi. So some negatives here on, on um, Zumagulov or some things that are, you know, questionable. He's one and two in his last three fights. So he's one and two in the UFC. So not a blazing start to his UFC career. He's got a very low finish rate. Matter of fact, in his last eight fights, he only has one finish in the last eight fights. Um, and that's like over a five or six year period, I believe. His boxing technique, how do I describe it? He's got some power in his hands. Um, he doesn't throw a lot of combinations, um, but they're quite looping punches. So he, he punches in a way that's very prototypical of a wrestler. And he's a pretty good wrestler. He's built like a wrestler, but very looping, off-balance shots. Okay, so Manol Kopp. Let's talk about Manol Kopp. He fought his first MMA fight when he was 14 years old. So this guy is from Portugal. If you look at the profile profile picture, you could tell he's probably got some other ethnicity going on there. Uh, yes, he's from also Angola. So he's, he's, he's from Angola. But I guess he grew up in Portugal, so he's got roots from both countries. He represents Portugal as his, as his native country, I guess, per se. Um, in any case, at 14 years old, he fights his first you know, MMA fight. He makes his pro debut at 17 years old in Cage Fighters 2. He won his pro debut at 17 years old with a TKO. Um, he's a former Ryzen Bantamweight champion, so came out of Ryzen. Pretty decent promotion. His father's a former world champion in boxing, so comes from a family that's been involved in you know, combat fighting or martial arts of some kind. He's got a high finish rate, okay? He's got seven finishes in a row. So of his last seven fights that he's won, he's won those seven fights all by some kind of a finish. And all were knockouts with the exception of one submission. He's only been finished once in his career. Um, so again, pretty durable. And the guy who finished him, it was by submission in 2017. It was Kyoji Haraguchi, who Haraguchi's fighting this Friday night um, in Bellator. He's a former, uh, I believe, former Ryzen champion, a former Bellator champion. He's actually going for the Bellator belt again this Friday night. So that was a quality loss against a good opponent. It was again by submission, not by knockout. Very active fighter, like I said as well about Zagas. Both fighters are fighting their third fight this year in 2021. So you do like to see that both fighters are active. Now some negatives or some cons here on Manal Kopp. He lost two close decisions against Nicolau and Pantoja. They were both very close. Some people felt that he may have won both those fights or maybe one of those fights. When you look at them, it's definitely close. My concern there is when, when, when fights are close that he doesn't necessarily step on the gas and do enough to win the rounds. Um, he's 28 years old, so maybe making improvements in that department, but I have noticed that in the recent past where he was in fights, like especially the fight I believe in Nicolau, Nicolau would be like on his back and welcome him just to come on, you know, get on top of him. And Manel Kopp was like, no, either just hesitant because he wasn't confident in his BJJ game or worried about what Nicolau could do to him. But he needed to do that to take top control, take some control time, you know, get some position points, you know, just to sort of solidify those rounds. And he didn't do that. And it cost him the fight. He lost that fight by split decision. So in any case, um, see some moments in the rounds where maybe he could do more. And so close decisions, he's tend to be on the wrong side of those. He came in overweight in his last fight. And I was like four pounds overweight. He gets the win. He ends up knocking out Ode, Ode Osborne, right? Ode Osborne. He knocks him out. Um, it was a nice, you know, flashy knockout. It was a little bit of a fast, you know, stoppage by the referee, but whatever. The point is he gets a nice knockout. He came in four pounds overweight. The guy still took the fight. You know, it showed a lack of discipline. Um, at 20 years old, this shouldn't be an issue for him right now. So just questions here about his fighter IQ. The fights we reviewed or the fights that I reviewed here when watching uh, tape on these guys, we reviewed the fight versus Nicolau for Manal Cop. And we also reviewed the fight versus Osborne. Those two links are in the description if you want to watch those fights yourself. Um, as for Zalgas, we watched the fight against Rivera and we watched the fight against Albazi. Those two links as well are in the description. So we're on the side of Zalgas. I just think right now that at this point, Manal Cop has popped up some red flags. You know, we've seen that there's some issues with either knowing when to push, you know, the pace and pressure. 
Um, yeah, he's got great hands. Yes, he's got knockout power. But Zagas is durable, okay? He's not an easy guy to finish. He could take a punch. Um, so for Manel Cop, if this fight gets late second round, third round, it gets to his, like Zaga's territory at that point. Manel Cop, the power will diminish a little bit just naturally because of fatigue. You got a guy like Zagas who's like a gremlin, man. He's just going to be all over you. He has a level of experience. He's, he's five years a senior, but he's not an old man. He's still only 33 years old. And with 19 total fights, it's not like he's been in a ton of wars. Okay, he's got a low finish rate, so his path to victory is most likely position control, uh, pushing tempo, um, you know, holding the center of the cage, you know, landing a few hard strikes, getting a few clinch, you know, opportunities. He's been known. I've seen it in some of his fights. He doesn't get much takedowns, right? But he'll get a takedown right at the end of a round. He's got that, you know, veteran mindset of like, I need to win the round, right? So, however we look at it here, I don't think minus two fifty is a safe bet on cop. If you're just betting that straight up. No, no, not good. And if you're going to parlay that, no, 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 no. I think with Zagas, he's going to obviously go into the lottery parlay we're going to play. But just straight up as a bet, maybe a quarter unit because I don't have a lot of confidence. I'm not saying Manel Cop can't knock him out or that Manel Cop hasn't gotten better here. He's a young fighter. But, you know, being overweight last fight shows a little lack of discipline. Zagas is a grinder, tough fighter. Um, I think Zagas is just enough here and probably cost a lot of – New betters, some money here. They're going to see, oh, Manel Cop, 20 years old. He's younger, minus 250, just parlay it, whatever. Uh, excuse me. <coughs> oh, my goodness. Sorry about that. Um, anyway, bottom line is I like Zaga Samagulov as another dog here. I'm playing him as at least at a quarter unit straight up, and I will parlay him in our lottery parlay. That's it. So we've got a welterweight bout between the American Jeremiah Wells and the Australian Jake Matthews. Jake Matthews goes by the Celtic Kid. He's 17 and 5 overall, 3 and 2 in his last five fights. Currently minus 190 in the money line, 27 years old, 5 foot 11 in height with 72 inch reach. He's training out of Nexus. As for Jeremiah Wells, he's a local fighter here out of Philadelphia, 9 2 and 1 overall, 4 1 in his last five fights, currently plus 160 in the money line. He's 35 years old, 5 foot 9 in height with 75 inch reach. He's training out of Renzo, Gracie, Philadelphia. So very good teammates like Sean Brady and Patrick Sabatini. Now, according to the public votes here, Matthews is a big favor here, getting 72% of the votes. Only 28% of the votes are coming in for Wells. I, you know, I've gone back and forth with this fight. Uh, I'll tell you now I'm on Wells. As you can see here on the screen, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, the arrow is pointing towards Jeremiah Wells. I'll break it down for you. Maybe you'll agree. Maybe you won't agree. Um, at first glance, though, I did think Jake Matthews would win. And after a little bit more of a deep dive, I, I switched sides here to Wells. So some more numbers here. We like numbers, right? More numbers. Striking numbers, okay, for Jake Matthews, he's landing 3.03 strikes per minute, absorbing 2.16, that's a nice ratio. For Wells, same thing, nice ratio, 3.82 per minute and absorbing 2.73. So, you know, slight, you know, output advantage there for Jeremiah Wells, but nothing very significant. As for takedowns now, here's a big difference. Jake Matthews is landing just under two takedowns per 15 minutes or per three-round fight, whereas Jeremiah Wells is averaging zero takedowns per 15 minutes. Now, these numbers are based on their UFC fights only. So for Jeremiah Wells, he's only fought one UFC fight, and it was a fairly quick fight, uh, which we'll talk about against uh, Worley Alves. So as for Jake Matthews, at 27 years old, this guy went pro at 18. He's actually got quite a bit of experience under his belt here, obviously at 17 and 5. You can see 22 fights. Um, we'll talk more about that. For takedown defense, Jake Matthews has 66% takedown defense. Not so bad. For Wells, it's 100%, but again, he's only fought one UFC fight, and it wasn't a very long fight. So... Um, Let's look here closer at some notes here on Jake Matthews. So he went pro at 18 years old, started his career off at 9-0. He lost in the Ultimate Fighter 21 to Kevin Lee via round 1 TKO 2016. RIP to Kevin Lee. Um, 
Uh, I'm sorry, that's my dog in the background barking. Must have some uh, somebody coming home from practice. I think that's my wife coming home with uh, our daughter from her uh, no her basketball game. She had a game this uh, today, middle school game. Anyway, um, so yeah, Kevin Lee. Um, when I say RIP, I mean like he just got cut by UFC. Tough, tough deal. He lost like four of his last five fights. I wish him well. Hope, hopefully, he bounces back and uh, finds his way to Bellator, another promotion. Anyway, back to Jake Matthews. Um, his first UFC fight was in 2014, which he won. He's got 15 total fights between UFC and Ultimate Fighter. If you combine Ultimate Fighter, I think he's got one Ultimate Fighter fight and 14 UFC fights. So a lot of good experience. He's got a notable win over Diego Sanchez in 2020, and I think that's his most notable win, which we'll talk about that. Diego Sanchez, um, if you don't know, the guy's kind of had some issues the last few years. You know, He got cut by the UFC, had some interviews that were a little bit weird, you know, made some accusations, had some personal issues going on in his life, um, had a long run in the UFC, had a lot of fights, but... I don't know, man. I hate to say CTE, but it seems like something's going on with him. But that was the most notable win here for Jake Matthews. We'll talk more about that fight. The toughest opponent he's ever fought, though, was Sean Brady. Now, he lost to Sean Brady via arm triangle, arm triangle in round three. We'll talk about that fight. That was his toughest opponent to date. Some positives here about uh, Jake Matthews, things I really like. He's 10-4 and four in the UFC. That's a, that's a good winning percentage, okay, um, over seven years. So he's been in seven years as, as a UFC fighter. He's approaching his prime fighting age. He's only 27 years old. So look... Between the next, you know, let's say three to four years, he'll be, you know, 31 or so. This is his prime fighting age. This is an opportunity for him to really peak out. Let's see the best version of Jake Matthews. Um, tons of experience for a young fighter. Solid training. Good partner. So they're all positive things I like here about Jake Matthews. Now, some of the things that concern me about him, very low finish rate. Okay, he's got a decision in five of his last six wins. Now, Sean Brady took him down. He kept him down, and that was a reoccurring theme in that fight, okay? So when you watch the film there on Sean Brady, the link's in the description, you'll see he gets taken down round one and round two, and it's rinse and repeat. He can't get back up. Um, round three gets taken down again, and it's a big fatal because he gets submitted, right? Um, slow pace and pressure, okay? What I mean by that is even when he has an opponent kind of beat or he's got the advantage of the opponent, um, for example, against Diego Sanchez, he doesn't push pace and pressure. He doesn't have like a killer instinct. You know, Diego Sanchez is a guy who fought a lot of fights, only been finished, I believe, three times in his UFC career. So very durable guy. You know, as out of his 13 losses in UFC, only finished three times. So it's not like Diego Sanchez is a slouch. But this version of Diego Sanchez that he fought recently, Jake Matthews never pushed the tempo, never tried to get him out of there. So a little bit of a concern for me. He lost to James Vick and Andrew Holbrook. Okay, let me tell you about these guys. Now, Vick is no longer with the UFC. He finished in UFC with four straight losses and actually was on a five-fight total losing streak at the end of his career. Holbrook, Andrew Holbrook, he hasn't fought since 2017. He's no longer with the UFC. And uh, three of his last four fights, he got TKO'd and finished. Okay, so those are two guys that are on Jake Matthews' record for the guys that he lost to. Just putting it out there, it's not, it's not the end of the world. I mean, Jake Matthews is young. But just trying to highlight some of the issues when I looked at him and some of the red flags I saw. Now, as for Jeremiah Wells. So I said, again, local fighter from Philadelphia. But he actually grew up in the Poconos. For all you, like, Northeast people, Jersey, New York City especially, you know the Poconos. The Poconos is, like, the mountain getaway for the Northeast um, Yankees like myself. Um, anyway, so shout out to the Pocono people. Um, he grew up in the Poconos and then uh, moved to Philadelphia, I guess, a teenager, late teens, early 20s. Um, played some football in high school, played baseball, played other sports, was very athletic, but never really stuck with anything, and was a fan of the UFC. Um, moves to Philadelphia, he's a fan, he's watching you know, fights, telling his friends, telling people around him, I could do this, man, I could be a UFC fighter, like, yeah, okay, whatever, dude. He actually finds a gym there in Philadelphia, starts training, falls in love with it, so gets a late start, okay? And uh, we'll talk more about how that 
how that translates to his actual fighting style in the in the cage. But just give you some background. So you know he was doing odd jobs, working at a factory, um, you know breeding dogs, whatever he could to help support his family. Now he's a full time fighter. Um, he did fight in the Northeast regional scenes like CFFC, and again coming from a very good gym. Um, he's only got one UFC fight to date. Um, so his you know his UFC debut was not too long ago here against. Uh, Warley Alves, and that was an exciting debut for him, a round two knockout back in June of this year. Um, he's got no Bellator experience, uh, but we mentioned, again, he had, did have some cage warrior experience. Um, let's talk about some of the pros and cons here, uh, Mr. Jeremiah Wells. He's got a finish in seven of his nine wins, okay? So he's got nine total wins. He's finished seven of those fights, so very high finish rate. His grappling in BJJ is not to be messed with. He's practicing on a day-to-day -day basis with guys like Sean Brady and Patrick Sabatini. These guys have similar builds, stocky wrestler types. His boxing is okay, you know? I mean, he's got heavy hands. He can knock someone out. But where his BJJ and grappling are just, uh, they're just top level. They're just top level. He, he hasn't really had a chance to show it, but it's a part of his game that I think is going to get better and better, especially if he stays there at that gym with those guys. Serious power in the hands. Uh, you can't deny it. Worley Alves is a pretty decent overall fighter. Yes, he's on a bit of a rad, bad run right now, but he got cold clocked. It was one punch that did it. Now, a few more punches were, were necessary to finish the fight, but it was one punch there from Wells that really cracked Alves. Watch that fight. The link's in the description. You can check it out yourself. Round two, uh, really impressive knockout there. Now, the cons here on Wells are the concerns I have. Now, he's got three total losses. His two losses were against guys that were very, like, ugh, you know, Vin Vincis de Jesus and uh, Manny Wallow. Very, like, questionable level guys, okay? Now, it wasn't CFFC and CS, so decent lower-level promotions, but still, you know, not great losses. His age, he's 35 years old, okay? So he doesn't have a lot of wear because he's got a late start in his career, hasn't fought a lot of fights, right? What, he's got 11, 12 total fights in his career. Um, but the reality is he's also raw, and that brings me to another point here. His fighting style is raw. His boxing is raw. You could tell he didn't grow up like doing Taekwondo or, or wasn't like a high school wrestler. He's got a raw part of his game. And in some parts of it, it's good. The bad part is sometimes he's just like flailing and walking and punching and not protecting himself and being reckless and being careless. If he feels like he has, has a fighter hurt, he'll really just start pushing pace and pressure, but without any regard for his chin. Okay, so... That could be an issue. Now, can he clock Jake Matthews here? Can he crack Jake Matthews, I mean? Can he back him up, hurt him, and finish the fight? Yeah, that could happen. But he, if he keeps this style up of reckless abandon and walking down a guy who thinks he's hurt or he thinks it's hurt, he's going to get caught with an uppercut. He'll get caught with a you know, hook of some kind. He's going to drop his ass. So um, a little reckless there with the way he fights, a little sloppy at times. Um, and again, the late start to his career lends to the reason why he's a little bit, uh, for lack of a better word, just raw as a fighter. Now, the fights that we watched on these guys, we watched the Brady fight for Jake Matthews, and I watched the Sanchez fight for for Jake Matthews. The Brady fight, I think there's a lot of positives there. He does go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the guy. He survives for two and a half-ish to almost three rounds, gets submitted. But the positives are he was able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him. He did knock down um, uh, Sean Brady in the first round. It was more of a catching of a kick, and then he landed an overhand right. But it was a nice punch. He definitely kind of flattened out um, Brady. But then the fight gets to the ground, he can't get back up. That was a reoccurring theme. So in that fight, it was an issue of his ground defense and then his ability to get back up were just not there against a very good grappler in Sean Brady. But it almost went the distance and almost until it didn't, right? But the point is, it wasn't the most, you know, worth showing, okay? Now, the prior fight against Sanchez in 2020, that one is where I'm, like, raising a lot of flags. Sanchez looked, um, he looked overweight. He looked old. Um, he was battered and bruised after round one, was bleeding, you know, got cracked a few times.
after round one, you're thinking, okay, this younger fighter here, Jake, you know, this Jake Matthews guy is going to just take him out and finish him. And he just didn't do it. So very lackluster. Those two links in the description. As for Jeremiah Wilds, we watched the fight against Alves 2021, which we mentioned. Nice knockout in round two. And then the prior fight was 2018 versus Boleto. And that's a fighter who was 7-2 overall. Decent level fighter, not UFC or Bellator material. But he ends up getting a nice little one-two punch combination for the knockout. Um, and you see there again, you see Jeremiah Wells has some power in his hands. There's no doubt about it. Now, something to mention here is the height difference, okay? There is a bit of a height difference here for Jake Matthews. He's going to have a two-inch height advantage here. And there'll be a three-inch reach advantage for Wells. So height and reach-wise, eh, I'm not sure it's going to play a big part of it. Output-wise, the numbers seem to be very similar. This, to me, comes down to the fact that I know that Jeremiah Wells is in a gym training with damn animals, rolling with guys in the mat. If Jake Matthews tries to take the fight to the ground, it's going to be a tough go for him. I think Jeremiah Wells is much more dangerous there. His BJJ is underrated. If the fight stays on the feet for three full minutes, one or two things going to happen. Either Jake Matthews is going to catch Jeremiah Wells because he's coming in and being sloppy and careless, or Wells is going to just overwhelm him and knock him out. I don't think it goes a distance, guys. I think Jake Matthews here either finishes the fight and gets a win. He's a minus 190 favorite, or Wells finishes him. The prop I like the most is Wells by TKO. Um, if you want to be specific, like round one TKO, I can see him coming out aggressive. A matter of fact, that Alves fight, he came out so aggressive against Alves, he gets a bit of a knockdown slash fall slip by Alves. But when I looked at that replay, it looked as if he was sweeping Alves like a, with a sweeping kick while also, also punching him. Catches Alves off guard. You know, he's just aggressive. And so with Matthews, I mentioned, he's not aggressive. He has sort of a like a wait-and-see approach, okay? And that's a problem against a guy like Wells who's coming in here. I mean, I got to imagine, Jeremiah Wells at 35 years old, there's no time to waste. He needs these Ws. He needs good Ws. He's out of a good gym. He's got teammates who've done a really good job recently. You know, Renzo Gracie, again, with Sean Brady and Patrick Sabatini, both coming off of wins. I think they get another win here for that gym. And so I like Wells here. And at plus 160, you got to like the value. I'm going to take a full unit here on Jeremiah Wells. I don't love him to the point of parlaying him. He'll be in the lottery parlay, of course. But that's a breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. Right, so the main event of the premium card is going to be a middleweight bout between Maki Patola from Hawaii and Dusko Tadarovic from Serbia. Dusko's 10-2 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights, currently a minus-170 favorite on the money line. He's 27 years old, 6'1 in height with 74-inch reach. He trains out of Sekator MMA, which is a gym in Serbia. As for Maki Patola, who goes by Coconut Bombs, that's a cool nickname. He's 13-8 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights, plus 150 in the money line. He hails from Hawaii, as we mentioned. 31 years old, 5'10 in height with 73.5-inch reach. He trains out of West Auhu MMA, which is a gym there in Hawaii. Now, according to the public here, uh, Dusko is a big favorite, getting 75% of the votes here on Tapology. Um, I don't agree. I think Maki Patola is going to win this fight. I'm going to break it down for you and try to convince you. Um, if you're thinking Dusko is going to win, hopefully I can open your eyes and maybe avoid you losing a bet on this fight. Okay, so let's look here more at the numbers here. Some more numbers. We love numbers, right? So striking numbers here. Maki Patola is landing 4.20 strikes per minute. He's absorbing 3.71. So not so bad. A little more than he's, little he's dishing out more than he's receiving, right? So as for Dusko, he's landing 5.71 strikes per minute. A little more volume. He's absorbing 5.18. So again, not so bad. He's dishing out more than he's receiving. And a little more active, a little more volume, which makes sense. When you watch Dusko's film, he's um, he's a volume striker. His most dangerous weapon is the jab, his punching. Um, not much in the way of leg kicking, not much in the way of grappling, not much in the way of takedowns, um, but punching, just volume. 
Now for takedown offense here, Maki's averaging 2.42 takedowns per 15 minutes or per three-round fight. This is a three-round fight. Dusko's averaging 0.35, so just a third of a takedown per 15 minutes, so pretty much not even a takedown. Um, so he's not very active in a takedown department or wrestling department. Now, takedown defense is the same for both guys. Well, pretty much the same. 55%, 50% takedown defense. Um, so their takedown defense is not great. Um, Maki Patola will probably look to take the fight down at some point if he's using his head and using a good game plan. Um, just from the standpoint of securing a round, securing points. Um, and Dusko's not doing great at defending takedowns. So that could be a path to victory there for Maki Patola. Now, um, looking here at just some notes in the fighters, some pros and cons or positives and negatives. Um, well, let's talk here about the fighter's history. For example, Maki Patola, he's 1-0 in Bellator. He has fought in Bellator. Um, he's got only one win in the UFC. It was against Charles Bird. Now, Charles Bird is 10-7 overall in the UFC. He's 1-3 in his last four fights, kind of on a rough streak, but that was his only win in the UFC. He earned a contract on Dana White's Contender Series in 2019. He beat Justin Sumter in round one via TKO. He started his pro career in 2013. He went 1-2 in his first three fights. Not a great start. Um, played football in high school, actually. The reason why he got into mixed martial arts was he was doing mixed martial arts in the offseason just to stay in shape. So growing up in Hawaii, played high school football, ends up transitioning over to mixed martial arts. He does have a younger brother named Alfonso, who also is a young mixed martial artist. Uh, so maybe both of them will be in the UFC at some point. Who knows? He's married with two kids, so a family man. Some positives, again, about this young man here. He's fought in Bellator and UFC. He's got experience in both promotions. Um, he's got a balanced attack here. When you look at Maki Patoli, he doesn't do anything doesn't do any one thing great, but he doesn't do anything else really bad. Um, he's got some IQ issues. We'll talk about that fighter IQ, maybe poor decision making, but he's balanced. He's got a balanced attack. Good on the ground. Could defend himself on the feet. Um, I think his boxing is is like comparable. When I say comparable, I want to preface that he's got like a Nate Diaz, Sean Strickland type of boxing style. A lot of like touch punches. Like he's not trying to hurt you, just trying to feel you out. He'll touch you, touch you, and then bam, he'll hit you hard. So he'll measure you. Um, he'll he'll hit you with some jabs. He'll just touch you, touch you, and then eventually he'll hit you harder with a shot when he kind of sees that you're in a situation where you're not respecting the power on this puncher. So kind of lulls his defender or his opponent to sleep with light touches, light jabs, and he'll go in, he'll, he'll dig, and he'll throw a hard punch. So I do like that about his style. It's part of that balanced attack. Again, doesn't do anything really amazing, but does a lot of things okay. Um, now, so the negatives here about Maki Patola He's on a losing streak right now. He's lost four of his last five fights, and he's lost three fights in a row. He's one and four in the UFC. Now, some of his losses are against also lower-level opponents, guys that are middling around 500 winning percentage. Not great. His fight against Marquez, okay, one of his recent fights here, that was back in 2021, earlier this year in February. He loses in round three via an anaconda choke. But it wasn't the choke that got him. It was the fact that he ran out of gas. He was winning the fight. Um, I mean, my opinion, if you watch that fight, the link's in the description, he was winning the fight. He was beating Marquez. He had it in the bag. And then in round three, he got clocked on the feet. He got hurt, got a little dizzy. Um, and then the fight goes to the ground. He gets choked. Now, in that fight, Marquez had tried the guillotine choke probably four or five times and had, you know, had Patola in the choke four or five times prior to that last time. So it wasn't as if Patola wasn't aware of it. And this is what I talked about, fighter IQ, making bad decisions. You cannot expose your neck to a guy. You're beating him. You're winning the fight. You expose your neck to a guy who's tried to choke you several times throughout the fight. The fight ends with a choke. So, you know, a terrible loss from the standpoint that he could have avoided it. He was winning it and could have won it. So, you know, you don't want to see that. Um, I didn't like that. Uh, one more thing about him that concerns me is he's a, he's a bleeder. So Maki Patola will cut quickly. He'll bleed um, you know, above his eyes, especially a lot of scar tissue above the eyebrow for him. 
So he's a bleeder, and that's never good in the scorecards, right, for the judges. Now let's talk here about Dusko Todorovic. This guy was 10-0, you know, the Serbian king, looking great. Things are all, you know, going you know, really good for him. And now he's got two losses in a row, okay? So when he went ahead and faced off against um, Soriano back in 2021, just, I'm sorry, back in 2021, this year, January of this year, he faces off against Soriano. He loses in round one. And that fight, I would implore you to please watch it. If you're betting here on Dusko Tadarovic, please watch that fight. Tell me with a straight face or text me or write me or put a note here on this on this video below um, that you don't walk away from watching that fight. It's only, it's only one round. First round, he gets knocked out. And you don't think he's got a chin issue. Like, Todorovic definitely has a chin issue. Now, when I say chin issues, there's different levels of chin issues, right? There's the guy who, like, you hit him one time and he's like out. <laughs> he's just out cold, right? Um, then there's the guy who like you don't have to hit him very hard, but he gets woozy. And then he spends like a whole, you know, round just like trying to recover up, back down, knocked. That's what happened in this fight against Soriano. Soriano literally knocks down Todorovic, I think, four, if not five times in that round. At one point, Todorovic's mouthpiece gets missing. He gets a full like one and a half to two minute rest where they're trying to find the mouthpiece. Um, even after that gets knocked down several times. It got to a point where I think Herb Dean was the referee. He, ste he steps in and calls the fight. And it's not because Dusko is like bleeding or terribly hurt looking. It's that he's got knocked down like four or five times in one round. Probably Herb Dean's like channeling his inner like, you know, boxing uh, referee. Like that's three knockdowns in one round. That's a TKO. You're done. So yeah, it was bad from the standpoint that he never could fully recover. He didn't, you know, implore fighting skills or survival skills to you know get back on his feet and be able he just continued to get knocked down and what i saw from that fight i'm gonna i'm gonna date myself here it reminded me of the klitschko brother for the boxing fans out there you know who i'm talking about here i'm talking about the younger klitschko brother who at some point in his career it was just awful he had no chin he would he looked great he was in amazing shape uh, he had great boxing skills good conditioning and if you just touched him on the chin it was like he was out of it. And so that's what's what ended up leading to the end of his career for the, the Klitschko brother. But anyway, I see that with Dusko. I feel like Dusko has his chin out there. His hands are very low. Okay, so it doesn't have, you know, great natural defense as it is. He tends to just move his head back. And not side-to-side -side movement, but just moves it back. So if you're throwing a follow-up to the jab, you're going to hit him in the face. You know, he does it a lot where he just leans back. I think he leans back from all these, you know, punches, which doesn't work over time. You know, so... Low hands, not blocking, you know, punches, um, definitely leads to some of the problems he's had recently. Now, some positives, though, about Dusko. He has fought three UFC fights, so he's got three UFC fights under his belt, some experience. Um, his kicking game is pretty good. He just doesn't use it enough. So, like, his kicking to the body, to the legs, it's good, just doesn't use it enough. Now, I'm going to say this, and I want this to sound the right way. Dusko Todorovic doesn't have, like, amazing technical boxing skills. But he's a fluid striker in that he's flexible. He's not robotic. You know, he punches from the hip like a Muhammad Ali fluid. You know, I'm, I'm not comparing his technique to Muhammad Ali. I'm just saying the fluidity of how he works. Fluidity. It's a nice word. And so um, that part of his game, I give him a plus. You know, he's not a robotic stripe, striker. He's he's loose. You know, he's flexible. Um, he's going to have a height advantage here. Not a reach advantage, but he'll have a height advantage. So I'm not sure how well that plays out for him, but it's a positive, right? Now the negatives here on Todorovic that I've noticed in, re noticed in recent fights, he doesn't straight, he doesn't, he doesn't box straight down the line here. Okay, it's not a straight punch. It's looping. It's everything's looping. It's leaning, looping off balance. Okay, his boxing defense is awful. 
It's just awful. I'm, I'm sorry to say it. His head's very high up. He doesn't have good head movement. Doesn't have his guard up. Um, constantly, constantly eating shots. He blocks punches with his face. I mean, um, he takes a lot of shots he doesn't need to take, and they add up quickly over you know a short short fight. So his cardio, I don't love his cardio. I feel like both these guys have cardio issues, um, but I just have, I've seen with him specifically where end of round one, round two, he slows down a lot. Um, now two last points here on um, Todorovic. I believe he's a very careless fighter. Careless in the fact that he doesn't mind taking a few shots. His hands are low. He's off balance. He'll he'll try a spinning fist. He'll try things that are unnecessary. If Maki Patola comes in here with a good game plan, he's going to find this guy off balance. He's going to chin check his ass and maybe take him to the ground with some takedowns. And mentioning the chin part of it, I've already talked about the chin. I don't believe that Tadarovic has a good chin. I think he's durable. Like he's a tough guy. He could take a few punches and he'll get back up. He'll try to recover. But once he gets stunned and Patola throws these mean uppercuts, if he hits one time uh, on this guy here, I just don't see, you know, Dusko recovering from that. So I'm on Patola to win the fight. Um, I will acknowledge that this is a fight where it's it's at the pick'em range, right? Minus 160 for Dusko, plus 140 for, for Maki. It's been floating around there. They're very similar experience-wise. You know, you got a guy with 10 and 2, got a guy who's 13 and 8. You know, again, not many more fights between the two of them. Fighter IQ. I think Dusko's got some things he's got to shore up. I also think Maki Patola has some things to shore up. Cardio-wise, both of them have shown some red flags in that in that area too. Neither one of them is great finishers, and their boxing is like, depends on how you value it. I think Dusko is a very raw boxer with no boxing defense. I think Maki Patola has a very like, again, he's like a street fighter, but fluidity to his fighting. It, it, it comes naturally for him. He does a lot of touching, doesn't put full into every punch. Um, now, grappling, I will say that's an advantage for Maki Patola. I think that's where he could possibly win the fight on the judges' scorecards. If he grapples enough, wrestles enough, brings the fight to the ground, gets some takedowns, which he did do against guys like Marquez. I mean, Marquez is a pretty strong guy. He pinned Marquez up against the cage in round one. He brought him to the, gr to the ground in round one and round two. If he does that here against Dusko, which should happen, Dusko's got 50% takedown defense, that could be a path to victory. The question becomes, when you're putting actual money on this fight and you're betting on the fight, you got plus 140 here on Maki Patola, which is there's some value there. The question becomes, when it doesn't go well and he loses the fight because of some you know, poor decision-making, you're going to look back and say, God damn it, I knew Maki Patola was going to make a mistake in there. I knew he would make a bad you know, choice. But that goes for both fighters. These guys both have exuded low fighter IQ maneuvers in the octagon. Will that happen here again? I don't know. But if it's just a straight-up fight, and there's no funny business here, no no taking away of any points or anything crazy, no disqualifications. I do think Maki Patola is going to tag Dusko over the course of three rounds. We'll probably hurt him. We'll probably drop him. And within that, also, we'll be able to take him to the ground. So I like Maki Patola to win the fight. Don't be scared of his recent fight history. They're both coming off of losses. These guys are both coming in here with their backs against the wall. There's a chance, the word in the street is that one of these guys may lose their contract after this fight. They lose. So... It's a big situation for both guys. I believe Dusk was coming in fully aware of it. He's going to be prepared. He's going to train his ass off. Um, he's a tough young guy here. It just doesn't match up well for him with what I've seen recently. I think he's got a major chin issue. I don't know that Dusk is going to be standing around the UFC much longer. I think it's going to be too much for him. He's going to keep getting knocked out, going to keep getting hurt. And for him, after starting off 10-0, he was his fight. He falls to 10-3. Kind of be a, be, the writing will be on the wall for him in terms of uh, – Maybe you're not built for this, buddy. You know what I mean? So with all that said, I like Maki Patola.
Next up, we've got a welterweight bout added to the main card here, which is a late addition. We've got Alex Moreno, the Great White, and Mickey Gall from New Jersey. Both American fighters. Mickey Gall is 7-3 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights, plus 200 in the current money line. He's from Greenbrook, New Jersey. 29 years old in 10 months, so about to be 30 years old. 6'2 and high with a 74-inch reach. He's trained out of Gracie, New Jersey Academy. As for Alex Moreno, who goes by the Great White, he's 20-7 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights, minus 250 on the current money line. He hails from Houston, Texas, 31 years old. 5'11 in height with a 72-inch reach. He's out of Gracie Barra Woodlands, which is a gym that he owns with his wife, but he trains primarily out of Fortis MMA. Now, according to the Tapology's public vote numbers here, Gall is getting only 14% of the votes. My Jersey Shore brother, I can't believe it. 86% of the votes are coming in here for Moreno. I mean, Moreno's a pretty good fighter, but I don't agree. I think Mickey Gall could win this fight. He's a live dog. I see a submission happening, and I'm confident in it. And yes, it's probably biased because he's from New Jersey, which is only about 15 minutes from me. Um, so let's talk here about details, striking numbers here. Striking numbers are definitely on the side of Alex Moreno. He's landing 5.14 strikes per minute and absorbing 3.89. So pretty good volume there and a good number in terms of output versus what he's receiving. For Mickey Gall, not so much. He's landing 2.6, so half the amount of output, and he's absorbing 3.68 strikes. So he's absorbing almost more strikes than Alex Moreno, but he's also dishing out much less. So that's not good in terms of his output. For takedown offense, Mickey Gall is averaging 1.32 takedowns per 15 minutes. Moreno's averaging 0.38 takedowns per 15 minutes, so pretty much no takedowns at all for Alex Moreno, and about a takedown per fight for Mickey Gall. Takedown defense is not good for either guy. 36% for, for Mickey Gall, 52% for Alex Moreno. Just neither one of these guys is good at defending takedowns, but lucky for them, neither one of these guys is a good wrestler, right? Okay, so looking here at some more details on the fighters. Alex Moreno, some information about him and his background. The biggest win of his career was probably Donald Cerrone um, earlier this year, back in May. He finishes Donald Cerrone first round, and I'm not taking anything away from this guy. Uh, Alex Moreno is a, a good fighter. You know, he's, he's very decent, above average, I would say. Um, but man, that's a washed up version of Don Cerrone. Uh, we all know that. Um, Donald Cerrone's on the way out. He looks like he's not training very hard. Um, there's been rumors that he's not training very hard. He's out there getting a few more paychecks and he's going to go right off into the sunset. Um, so his toughest fight to date was probably that maybe Anthony Pettis, maybe chaos Williams who knocked him out. Um, so it's just, you know, he hasn't had a signature win per se. And people would say, Oh, the Donald Cerrone's one. That's that's old Donald Cerrone, Donald Cerrone 3.0, right? Um, he was born and raised in Houston, Texas. He has three brothers. Um, his parents um, actually got him a membership to like LA boxing when he was like a teenager, just to help you know get in shape, you know whatever. He fell in love with BJJ, and you know the rest was history. Um, him and his wife, like I said, they own a gym down there in Texas called uh, Gracie Bar of the Woodlands. So they have a gym that they own, and so nice business people making some moves, right? Some positives here about Moreno. He's on a two-fight winning streak here in the UFC. He does have five years of UXC experience, and he's 7-4-1 overall in the UFC. Not so bad. Some negatives on him that I noticed, okay? He has been finished three times, okay, including when he got finished by Nico Price. Now, Nico Price finished him after the fight. Nico Price tested positive for weeks. So they didn't count. It was like a no contest. But he got finished by Nico Price, okay? Pettis beat him back in, what, 2020? That was the last time Pettis fought in the UFC, the last time that Pettis won in the UFC, and it was against... Alex Moreno. So, limited athletic background. What I mean by that is Alex Moreno was not like a high school wrestler, um, you know, wasn't a standout uh, amateur athlete in any sports, okay? So, he kind of picked this thing up as he was an adult. No no offense, but just just a reality. He was a minus 400 favorite when he went against Chaos Williams, and he got knocked out by Chaos Williams. He was a minus 400 favorite. So, money line-wise, they've been not uh, accurate with him uh, going into fights. Now, He's a very careless striker. This is one of my biggest concerns with Alex Moreno. 
he just swings with no regard for his chin. He doesn't have any, you know, no guard, no defense, uh, limited head movement. So he gets into a situation where as soon as he gets a little fatigued, he's like, oh, I'm just going to square up with this guy and start punching. Like, it's not a good technique. At some point, he's going to get clipped. Now, I'm not sure it's Mickey Gall. Mickey Gall probably find him off balance, take him to the ground and submit him. Um, but just in general, when you watch Alex Moreno on film, okay, we have a few links there to watch his prior fights. He gets sloppy. He gets very careless when he's into exchanges with his opponent. Now, as for Mickey Gall, again, I'm biased. He's from Jersey, so I know I'm biased. Some roots about him, some high school, college experience here. So he was born in Greenbrook, New Jersey, as we mentioned. Started boxing at 13 years old, then moved to BJJ when he was 16. In high school, he was a multi-sport athlete, captain of the football team, um, good standout wrestler. Went to Wachong Hills Regional High School there in New Jersey. Now, after high school, he goes to Rutgers University, full-time student. In his part-time, he's delivering like uh, he's a delivery, delivery truck driver for Walmart just to go ahead and raise the money to be able to pay for his training. So he stays in jiu-jitsu in college, continues his training while he's going to college, the whole nine, part-time job. So just a responsible guy. He's grinding. He was 3-0 as an amateur before going pro in 2015, so had a nice little amateur record. Um, some things about him that I really like a lot. He's coming off of a win against Jordan Williams, round one submission which is pretty much his wheelhouse. He's going to rear naked choke you if you give up his, if you give your back to him, okay? Nine UFC fights. He's eight, eight. I'm sorry, nine UFC fights. I'm sorry, that can't be right. He's eight and three overall in UFC, 11 total fights. So that's not right. 11 total fights in UFC, he's eight and three overall. Um, quality loss for him. He lost to Mike Perry in 2020 by decision. Yeah, Mike Perry. Tough ass, crazy ass Mike Perry. They went all three rounds. So not a terrible loss. He's only 29 years old and he's got 10 total fights in his career. So... This is a guy who's approaching his prime years of fighting, his prime age years. Not that Morono's not either. Morono's only, what, two years older. But for Mickey Gall, his better days are ahead of him. You know, that's that's my position here. I think his best days are ahead of him. They're definitely not behind him. Whereas Alex Morono, I'm not so sure. Um, I'm not so sure about him. And I mean that. I'm just not so sure. Six submission wins and ten fights for Mickey Gall. Yeah, so it's ten wins that he's got. Sorry. Why am I saying 10 wins? He's got six submission wins in seven total wins. Okay, so six wins by submission out of the seven total fights that he has won. Um, he's fought 10 total fights in general. So again, six submissions out of 10 total fights, high rate. Also had two submissions as an amateur. So just want to put it out there. So he actually had two submissions in three fights as an amateur. And they were by rear naked choke. His first four pro fights, he rear naked choked the guy he was fighting against for a victory. So the guy is good at submissions. He's cornered by Matt Brown, who's a former, who's a who's current UFC fighter and a teammate of his. So that's positive. Now, negative, negative. The one negative that I have here in Mickey Gall, this is the only thing I really got, got a little question about. He lost in 2019 to Diego Sanchez, and he got finished by Diego Sanchez. Now, look, Diego Sanchez, say what you want to say about the guy. Rough and rugged, right? He's a roughneck. But, man, he is a shell of himself. The last few years, that guy has been... Um, yeah, a shell of himself. No longer in the UFC, right? Having some kind of emotional problems. And now he's battling COVID and he doesn't even think COVID exists. Whatever. That's a whole different other issue. But here's the point. Um, Diego finished him in 2019, two years ago. So that was a not a good look there for Mickey Gall. But up and down, when you look at this fight, you got Alex Bruno at minus 250. Why? Because he finished Donald Cerrone this year. And people are like, oh man, he finished Donald Cerrone first round. Get that out of your head for a second. Just, might as well just remove that fight altogether. Okay, that, that does not matter. He beat a guy that you could beat. That a guy that's old, past his prime, that's not training very well or very hard, I, I'm sorry, I should say. So with all that said, I, I think Alex Moreno is a decent fighter. He comes off to me as the kind of guy who's crafty, cerebral, 
um, overachiever. You know, um, if you look at the way he's built, I don't know this for sure, but it looks as if he was overweight before and then he lost weight. Um, I don't know this for sure, but it seems as if he's the kind of guy where he wasn't an athlete as a kid. And as an adult, he started pursuing sports, got into this sport, mixed martial arts, and he's sort of finding his path. That's not a knock on him. Just being, you know, realistic with you, okay? He's not Alonzo Menafield where Alonzo Menafield was a good high school football player, played in college, you know, played professional football for the CFL. That's not Alex Morono. Alex Morono is a gym owner. He's cerebral, smart guy, married, family man. His head screwed on tight, but not athletically gifted. Now, Mickey Gall, on the other hand, okay, I think he's athletically gifted. This guy's got a three-inch height advantage and a two-inch reach advantage. He's long, he's lanky, and he's a submission guru. If at some point Alex Moreno gets into the wrong position, Mickey Gall will swoop up a rear naked choke and the fight. Now, if it goes a distance, I think Mickey Gall gets the win on the scorecards. He's a longer striker, more fluid, um, not as sloppy with his striking. He'll get some position control. And look, the Alex Moreno train, whoever's on that hype train right now, slow it the hell down, please. I like the guy. Okay, but looking at his recent fight history, I don't know what's the hype about. Like, he lost to Anthony Pettis in 2020. Anthony Pettis is, is garbage right now. You know? He beat David Zawada and Donald Cerrone. That's his two recent fights that he won. He's on a two-fight winning streak. But he got knocked out by Chaos Williams just a year ago. Lost to Anthony Pettis just a year ago. So this is just within the last year that he lost these fights to guys that are decent overall fighters. But Pettis is garbage. And Chaos Williams, he's been up and down. But when he got in there with Chaos Williams, Chaos Williams knocked him out in 27 seconds. <laughs> 27 seconds. Because Moreno is sloppy with his striking. He's got like this uh, confidence that he could take a punch. I don't know where it comes from. Anyway, there's your breakdown, guys. I'm sorry this is going to be probably out of order in terms of how we break down the fights for this card. Because, again, it's a last-minute replacement, a last-minute addition to, to the main card. But it's our breakdown. Another dog for you guys. I like uh, Mickey Gall here. Good luck with this fight, guys. The first fight in the main card is going to be a middleweight bout between two American fighters, Brandon Allen and Chris Curtis. Now, Brandon Allen's coming to this fight 17-4 and four overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. Big favorite here at minus 350 on the money line. He's from Stadel, Louisiana. 25 years old, 11 months. He'll be 26 years old very soon. 6'2 in height, the 75-inch reach. He's training out of Sanford MMA. Now, as for Chris Curtis, the action man, you might recognize the name. He fought about well, three and a half, four weeks ago on the 6th of November. Uh, his UFC debut um, in grandose fashion. He gets a first-round knockout over Phil Hawes. We'll talk about that. So anyway, Chris Curtis, who goes by the Action Man, is 27-8 and eight overall. 5-0 and oh in his last five fights. Currently plus 270 in the money line, so quite a big dog. He hails out of Las Vegas, Nevada, where he trains out of Syndicate MMA. 34 years old. 5-10 in height with 75-inch reach. So right quickly here, just looking at their reach numbers, they're, they're the same. But height-wise, Brandon Allen's going to have a 4-inch height advantage on him. Not sure it's going to be a big deal. Uh, both come out of good gyms, both good training camps. Now, according to Tapology, the public vote here is strong in the side of Allen, with Allen getting 81% of the votes and only 19% of the votes coming in for Curtis. Now, some more numbers here on the two fighters. Brandon Allen's landing 4.10 strikes per minute, and he's absorbing 4.24. Um, Curtis landing 6.54, absorbing 6.85. So both fighters are dishing out exactly what they're receiving, which is not great. It's a sign of inefficiency when it comes to their striking game, but... They're both the same at it. Put it that way, okay? For takedown now, this is where it's different here. For Brandon Allen, he's landing 1.29 takedowns per 15 minutes or one and a half takedowns more or less per three-round fight. As for Chris Curtis, he's gotten zero takedowns in his UFC career, but that's only one fight, okay? Now, his prior fights before coming to the UFC, he's not a big grappler, not a big wrestler. He's going to knock people out with his hands. He wants to stand on his feet. Not a big kicking game either. Just really pretty much boxing with his hands. 
Now, for takedown defense, though, for Chris Curtis, he's got 100% takedown defense in the one lone fight he had against Phil Hawes. And for Brandon Allen, he's got a 50% takedown defense. So for Allen, not great takedown defense, but the, the issue here becomes this fight will most likely be on the feet for as long as Brandon Allen wants the fight to be on the feet. Now, if he wants the fight to go to the ground, he'll have to work at it. He'll have to get some takedowns. But Chris Curtis wants to keep the fight on the feet. He doesn't want to play on the ground. On the ground. And for Brandon Allen, who's a submission, you know, he's very good at submissions, that'll be more of his wheelhouse where Chris Curtis will be looking to box the entire time. Now, looking here at uh, just some more notes on the fighters here. So let's start with Brandon Allen. He defeated Aaron Jeffrey on Dana White's Contender Series in 2019 to kind of get his way in. Now, at that time, he's 2021 right now, right? 2021. This kid's 25 years old. He was 23 years old when he won that fight. Gets a UFC contract. At 24 years old, he lost to Sean Strickland, um, got really beat up. So this guy's a very young fighter. Again, he's only 25, about to be 26, where Curtis is 34 years old. So he's a very young and up-and-coming fighter, still learning a lot, still making a lot of improvements in his game. His first three losses in his career were against Trevin Giles, Eric Anders, and Anthony Hernandez. And all those three fights were before he joined the UFC. Um, and so I'll give him that. And that three fights that he first three fights that he lost in LFA and other promotions were against guys that eventually made their way to the UFC. So quality losses, right? Some positive things about Brandon Allen. He's 5-1 in the UFC. He's on a two-fight winning streak. He's got a very high finishing rate. It shocked me when I looked at the stats, actually. He has finished 14 of his 17 total wins. So he's got 17 total wins, and 14 of those he has finished those fights. Um, and a good finishing balance, so submissions and TKOs. Notable wins for him. The most notable wins of his career are over Kyle Dawkins, Tom Breeze, and Kevin Holland. Um, say what you want to say about those guys, but they're decent. I'd say they're above average fighters. Um, and he did finish Kyle, He did finish Kevin Holland, and he also finished Breeze as well within two rounds. Um, he's fought some tough opponents, especially for 25 years old. Again, um, you know, getting knocked out by you know Sean Strickland showed his youth, um, showed some low fighter IQ in moments in, the, in that fight. Didn't make the adjustments he should have made. But at 24 years old, hopefully learning experience, very active. Look how active this guy has been here. So this will be his third mixed martial arts fight this year. He also did a grappling bout this year. So he's going to be his fourth total, I guess, combat performance this year. He fought three times in 2020. He fought three times in 2019. Excuse me, three times in 2020 and three times in 2019. This will be this will mark his ninth fight since 2019. So here's a guy who's very active. He's young, making progress. Uh, at a good gym. So a lot of positives here. We should see continued growth from him in his fights um, at this young age where he's being busy. He's in the ring um, or in the octagon often. Solid kicking game. I think his kicking game is a little underrated. So he's active with his leg kicks, his body kicks. Um, he spreads it out. In this fight here, he's fighting a guy who doesn't use any leg kicks. Chris Curtis does not kick at all. Okay. So there should be a significant advantage there for, um, uh, you know, for, for Allen here to be able to land leg kicks, use them to create some space, Mix things up, and also on the judges' scorecards, where the judges are seeing leg kicks from one opponent, and the other guy's not even throwing any leg kicks. So, um, four submission wins in his last eight wins. Okay, so of the last eight fights that he has won, four of them he's won by submission. So pretty good with submissions. I'm not sure that he's going to submit here a guy like um, Curtis, but if the fight gets in the ground, clearly it's going to be more in the wheelhouse, more to the benefit of Allen. Now some negatives here on Allen. Okay. He really got picked apart by Sean Strickland. When you watch that fight, um, it's ugly. I mean, it's not one or two or three. It's like hundreds of punches he's eating. He's not moving. He's not changing his fighting style. He's getting bloodied up. Um, and by the by, the, by what, the first minute and a half of round two, he looks like he's been fighting in a 10-round heavyweight fight. Um, he's all off balance. He's beat up. He made some statements, um, you know, post-fight, did some interviews saying that he wasn't, you know, in the best of shape coming into that fight. There was some issues going on, maybe some health issues, whatever. 
either way, he didn't look good. And Sean Strickland really pulled his ass apart. Didn't look good for him. And at the age of 24, that could be a bad loss. It could have a bad effect on you. Not sure that's the case for him, but you know, just putting it in perspective. Another negative with him is he's only 25 years old. <laughs> he just doesn't have a lot of experience, right? He's only fought a handful of fights. Um, yes, he's busy, but he's still learning a lot. Um, if you're listening to this podcast right now, you know that at the age of 25, if you're older like me, older than 25, that is, um, you're still learning a lot about life. You know, you're just a few years removed from high school, um, maybe a year or two removed from college if you went to college. So, you know, it, a lot of growing is happening here with this guy. That's a positive. It's also a negative. Um, he's been finished twice in his career. Now, one time by Trevin Giles back 2016, a G-choke, no big deal. But the finish versus Strickland, that's the kind of finish where you can't have that happen too much. If that happens too much within a short period of time, you're going to start getting off the off the uh, off the uh, the railroad per se, off the tracks, right? So the loss to the loss to Strickland, I don't want to over, I don't want to overstate it, but it was an ugly loss. He got really beat up in that fight. Now he's had some difficulty with higher level opponents. Now I don't want to say across the board higher level opponents because when he's beating guys like Str- you know, he's beating guys that are decent, okay? But when he went up against Strickland, it was obvious. Because if he fights Strickland again right now, he's going to get his ass kicked again, okay? He would have to make some significant changes in his fighting game, um, his guard, his boxing defense, to beat a guy like Sean Strickland. And if you know this now, it's like, okay, where does he go from here? Is he going to make those adjustments? Is he going to get better? Will he walk into a left hook here from Curtis? That's a possibility, right? Let's talk here about Curtis. Now, for Curtis, he started as a pro mixed martial artist in 2009, all right? So this is 12 years now. Um, what am I saying? 12 years? No, not 12 years. This is, uh, yeah, yeah. 12 years, right? 12 year career so far for him. Um, he just won his UFC debut, uh, four weeks ago, big underdog plus two fifty. goes in there and knocks out Phil Hall's round one. Um, I mean, just, I gotta, I gotta mention he was losing round one. He was losing all of round one. Phil Hall's was doing whatever he wanted to do. Big kicks, punches, whatever he wanted to do. Phil Hall's was looking like a like he was sparring, and Chris Curtis was just taking the punches and taking the kicks, right? And then, out of nowhere, Chris Curtis lands a really solid left hook. Phil Hawes is clearly buckled. He's he's hurt. He doesn't recover, doesn't have good survivor skills. So, Chris Curtis lands a few more hooks, a few more knees, bodies him up, and then Phil Hawes just, like, falls to the ground at some point. Not even from punch, just, like, he's, like, limping away, kind of shuffling away, and just falls. Um, Curtis comes down, hammer fist, and that's it, and that's all she wrote. So, beautiful win in his first UFC fight. Great. I'm happy for the guy. He's a veteran, you know, been around for a long time. Finally got a shot, comes in there, big upset, first round knockout. But if that's his only path to victory is like splash knockouts, as he moves up the ladder here and fights better and better UFC opponents, he's going to run into some problems here, okay? He's got no ground game, no ground attack, no wrestling attack, weak, weak, weak grappling skills in general. His really only weapons for him are his hands, okay? And that's, I'm not, I'm not, under, I'm not understating that. His hands are dangerous, but here's the reality. He's fighting a guy here in Allen who's more well-versed, more well-rounded. He's got kicking game. He's got a ground game. He's got a wrestling game. Um, he's got a submission game. So here you got a guy, Curtis, who's coming off this unbelievable first-round knockout win, his first UFC fight. Um, looked good. Got the hands. Has a lot of finishes. But he's not as well-rounded here as Allen. Um, it, it starts to show up more and more when you watch him on film. Okay, so for Allen... Some positive things about, I'm sorry, Curtis. Positive things about Curtis. He's on a six-fight winning streak. He did win his UFC debut, as we talked about. He won in Dana White's Contender Series in 2019. Got a finish in round three via TKO. He's only been finished one time in his career, and it was by Ray Cooper III, who TKO'd him two years ago. Now, Ray Cooper III is a champion, obviously, over in Bellator. Um, 
He just beat Phil Hawes. It's a nice win. UFC debut, as we mentioned. Um, pretty high finish rate, actually. So he finished five of his last six fights. We mentioned that earlier in the breakdown, but that's not to be overlooked here. So he does finish his first UFC opponent. That's not by surprise. He's been finishing guys recently. Now, some cons or negative things here on uh, our buddy, Mr. Curtis. He was one and four in the PFL, and he actually lost his three straight PFL, last three PFL fights in a row. He's had pretty low-level competition across his career. Uh, hasn't fought. I mean, Phil Hawes is probably the best person he's ever fought. And no offense, but Phil Hawes is, you know, he's a middling UFC fighter at this point. He's nine years older than Brandon Allen. And in this case, it's not that it's a big negative. I mean, he's still in those prime years, 34, 35. Um, hasn't taken a lot of beatings, you know, by any means. But if it gets to round three, could Brandon Allen be the younger, more spry fighter at 25 years old, have a little more energy here than Curtis? I could see that. Um, Curtis is not through combinations. He's a one punch type of guy, uh, one jab at a time, one hook at a time, maybe two punches together, slowly together, but he's not a combination fighter and doesn't throw any leg kicks. and doesn't do any wrestling. So when I look at this from top to bottom, it seems to me without looking at too much of it from an emotional standpoint, because emotionally I am on the side of Curtis. I'm like, this guy came in last month, you know, quick turnaround. Um, this fight was supposed to be Roman Delitza versus Brandon Allen. And Delitza had to back out. And so that's why. Curtis is getting a phone call last minute. I don't love the quick turnaround. And here's the reason why. You know he didn't have a full camp. He couldn't have, right? He had a full camp maybe for his prior fight, but didn't have a full camp for this fight. Um, he's fighting a guy here who loves to grapple. He likes to wrestle, likes to work in submissions, likes to work heel hooks, all that kind of nonsense. Um, so did Curtis have time to prepare for that? What do you have, like a week and a half to prepare for that? So I don't love that. Um, I think for the UFC, they're like, listen, throw Curtis back out there. The dude's exciting. He's got hands. He's relevant. You know, people know who he is. Um, he's 34. We don't have a lot of time with this guy. And we got Brandon Allen, 25-year-old prospect who's up and coming. We want to see what he's about. And so I feel as if Curtis right now, he's kind of getting thrown to the fire here. Um, and God bless him. He got the phone call. And he's like, I don't want to turn anything down. I'm going to make the most of these opportunities. The more fights, the better. And more money in my pocket. Yes, yes, boss. I'll fight. So... That's how we have it, but when you look at it from that standpoint, it seems as if Brandon Allen, who's had the full camp, who's younger, um, who's made some mistakes recently, hopefully learning from those, those mistakes, making improvements. I like Brandon Allen. I, I will also, though, want to preface this and say I don't have a lot of confidence, and if you're looking for a dog on the main card at plus 280-ish, plus 270, Chris Curtis may be a dog or pass play for a lot of people, and I understand that. Um, I also understand the concept that within three rounds, can he clip Brandon Allen? Maybe, you know, Brendan Allen looked really shaky there against Sean Strickland. Now, the thing is, again, is 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 Curtis, Chris Curtis going to come out there and throw a bunch of volume and, like, throw, like, 100 strikes? No, that's not going to happen. And that's what happened when Brendan Allen fought Sean Strickland. It was the volume, tons and tons of strikes. For Brendan Allen, as long as he doesn't get hit in the head by a pole shot, like a real nasty shot, he should survive three rounds. He should have more output. He should get more takedowns, have position control, and win the fight comfortably on the scorecards. But both guys have had a high finish rate. So I guess if you're looking at the props here, which we'll talk about that during our prop show, there's going to be some TKO submission props at least to look at because both guys have had a five high finish rate. Something tells me, though, they're both meeting at a point in their careers where they're very similar. And that's why I could see it go in the distance. And I could see this being a decision win for Brandon Allen. Either way, I like Allen to win the fight. These guys are very similar in many ways. I think age is going to be a factor at the end of the fight. I think the, I think the height is not really going to be a factor, but the wrestling and the grappling will be a factor. And so... There's our breakdown, guys. Took way too long for this fight, but um, it's partially because I think it is a little bit closer than it should be. That minus 365 is a little disrespectful here to Chris Curtis. 
I like Brandon Allen, but he's only 25, 26-ish. You know, very young fighter here, still learning his way. But I like Allen to win the fight. Um, I will bet it, but I will bet it with caution. I will definitely not be parlaying Brandon Allen or anything. I don't have that kind of confidence in him to win the fight. So that's our breakdown, guys. Next up, we've got a light heavyweight bout between two fighters coming off of injuries in their last fight. Jimmy Crute, the Australian fighter, and Jamal Hill, the American fighter. Now, Hill goes by Sweet Dreams. He's 8-1 overall, 3-1-1 in his last five fights. Currently plus 150 in the money line. He hails from Grand Rapids, Michigan. 30 years old, 6'4", and height by 79-inch reach. As for Jimmy Crute, who goes by the Brute, Crute the Brute. He's 12-2-0 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights, currently minus 190 in the money line. He hails from Melbourne, Australia, 25 years old, 6'2", and height by 74-inch reach. He's out of Greco and Stewie's house. So that's the gym he's out of. As for Jamal Hill, all I could find out about his gym was the fact that it's based out of Grand Rapids somewhere. He does train in his hometown. He has a striking coach. He's got a head coach, um, but no actual gym name of reference. So I'm imagining it's a small gym, probably somewhere in his area where he lives at. Uh, that raises a lot of red flags for me. Doesn't have good partners. Doesn't have well-known coaches. Um, you know, he's not sparring with guys that are well-known, not training day-to-day -day with MMA guys. And so... Um, that's a bit of an issue. We'll talk more about that as we break down the fight. Some more numbers on these guys here. Now, according to Tapology's public vote, Crute the Brute is getting 79% of the votes here, only 21% of the votes coming in for Hill. I do think Crute wins the fight, but I don't believe it's going to be a landslide. I don't think so. Um, I think Jamal Hill's a pretty good fighter. I just think that Crute's going to be able to edge him out in a few areas. So I do agree with the public, I guess, perception there. Um, some more numbers here for you. So Crute is landing 4.26 strikes per minute. He's absorbing 2.71. That's a good ratio. As for Jamal Hill, he's landing 7.5 strikes per minute. I mean, huge output, a lot of volume, absorbing 3.6. So both these guys are landing significantly more strikes than they're absorbing. And in the case of Jamal Hill, it's almost double. Um, it is double. <laughs> As for takedowns, Crute's landing 4.97 takedowns per three-round fight. This is a three-round fight. So almost five takedowns per 15 minutes. It's very active in the wrestling area. As for Jamal Hill, he's actually... Does not have a single takedown yet in the UFC. So zero takedowns per 15 minutes. For takedown defense, they're about the same. Both guys are defending at about a 60% rate. Um, so takedown defense, we'll see how much of that takes a, plays a part in this fight. I think the bulk of the fight will be on the feet. Now, if Crute decides to take the fight to the ground, um, whether it's just for strategy, to win a round, or whatever, I think he's got an advantage there, and that could be a smart move for him. Because on the feet, that's where Jamal Hill's going to be the most dangerous. Okay, um, let's talk here more about the fighters individually. So let's look here at Jimmy Crute first, okay? So... He was a full-time forklifter. That's what he was doing full-time before he joined the UFC. Hard-working, blue-collar guy. Now, he's coming off of this nasty loss to um, um, Smith, all right? So he fights Smith. He gets kicked in the leg. His leg just falls asleep. He's, like, rolling on his ankle. But, man, when you watch that fight against Anthony Smith, you can't help but to notice that even after the leg injury happens, Jimmy Crute executes a takedown. He gets a takedown. He actually gets Anthony Smith down. He's fighting the fight gets called between rounds, more or less. They don't let him come out fully for the second round. He wanted to fight. So it's like he earned a lot of, um, you know, street credit points there. You know, durability was not great. Obviously, he got hurt. But the heart was there, man. He wanted to fight. He he took down Anthony Smith, even with a bum leg. So um, that was impressive. Now, he comes from a long line of boxers, actually. So both parents were in the boxing game. They got him into karate and judo when he was a kid. You know, started BJJ when he was 11 years old. So was in and around martial arts as a young kid. And at 19 years old, he actually made his pro debut and had a first-round finish there in Hex Fight Series uh, down in Melbourne, Australia. Um, he won his Contender Series debut 2018, won that, got a contract from that. Um, I want to mention his fight against Modestus Bukalkis, who obviously was cut recently. So 
Um, you know, prayers to Bukalkis. I hope he does well, whatever promotion he signs with. But they fought, and that was a highlight win for Jimmy Crute. Like, he knocked the damn hell out of Modestus Bukalkis. But I noticed something about it that I want to make sure I highlight here. Right after he knocks this guy, like, silly, he immediately takes a knee, goes to check on the fighter. You could see he's genuinely concerned. He goes to sit down next to the fighter. Um, just very respectful attitude. Uh, showed a lot of character. Showed a lot of humbleness. Um, so I just noticed that about this guy, Jimmy Crute. You got a lot of barbarians running around, mixed martial arts guys who are just, you know, for lack of a better word, just kind of dickheads maybe outside the octagon, maybe have, you know, anger management issues. Um, I like what I saw from Crute. Um, it was a moment where, again, you saw a level of class and character. I enjoy seeing that from these fighters. This is a tough business. Anyway, that link's in the description. If you want to watch that fight, you can see the way he responds at the end of the fight. So some positives here about Jimmy Crute. Very durable. Other than that leg kick that he got from you know, Anthony Smith and the choke out from Misha Serkinov, which we'll talk about. He's a beefy boy. He's just a thick kid, thick all around, looks very durable, can take a, you know, could take a punch. Now, we don't know a lot about these guys. We do have to acknowledge the fact they've only fought a few fights in their respective careers. So these guys are, you know, total, total fights between the two of them is like less than 20. Um, so we haven't seen a lot. But from what we have seen, it looks like Crute's got a pretty good chin. Looks like he's pretty durable. Now, cons or the negatives here with Crute, I just mentioned Misha Serkinov. No offense to Misha Serkinov, but man, he has looked uh, not great recently. And here's a guy in Crute who got submitted. <laughs> you know, he got submitted. He got finished um, by Misha Serkinov. So not great. Hopefully that was just a learning experience. Um, if you know anything about Misha Serkinov, that's his only path to victory is by submitting somebody who's built like, a, like the Hulk, not a great striker. Um, so maybe that was a learning experience for Crute, but that's a little bit of a red flag. You got to acknowledge the fact that he did lose against a guy who's really struggling right now in the UFC and has not been looking good. I think at times, Crute can be mechanical with his movements. And I think it's more of a physiology thing. He's big, he's bulky, um, just the kind of the way he's built. Not very fluid, okay? Not a great fluid striker. Not going to be throwing jabs like Muhammad Ali out there. So he can be a little mechanical with his movements. And I think at times, you combine that with a little bit of fatigue, you start seeing a slow reaction time from him. And I, I don't love that either. If you're looking at Jamal Hill and you like Jamal Hill as a prospect to win this fight... You're probably loving what I'm saying right now. You're like, yeah, Jamal Hill's got hands. He's got volume, seven strikes per minute. He'll be throwing hands, throwing hands. If Jimmy Crute slows down, and take a bunch of jabs to the face. Yeah, I could see that. But let's not pretend like Jimmy Crute can't then wrestle Jamal Hill to the ground if that's a factor you know, in the fight. So there's ways for him to get out of that. Now, both fighters have limited experience. I mentioned it, but I want to highlight it. We don't know who these guys really are. In, let's say, a year and a half from now, we'll have a much better perspective on who Jamal Hill is a fighter, who Jimmy Crude is a fighter. We just don't know right now. With guys who fought, like, almost 10 fights total, each of them, you just don't know a lot. And with Jamal Hill, I'm going to go on and on here in a rant in a, section, in a little bit here about what I think I have uncovered about him. And I think it's information that may sort of point towards what's going on with his with his um, recent struggles and the reason why he got dominated by Paul Craig. So let's talk about Jamal Hill. Here we go. He's born in Chicago, raised in Grand Rapids. Was a really good basketball player growing up. Actually had opportunities to play basketball, like I think even overseas, professionally, or even going to college. Was a good ball player. Tall guy. Um, he's six foot four in height. Passed that up. He wanted to get into mixed martial arts. That's what he wanted to do. Now, I'm going to say, because I've heard this before, um, born in Brooklyn, coached athletes for a long time, especially from the inner city. When someone says they didn't want to go to college and play college basketball, or they passed up an opportunity to play ball, to be a mixed martial artist, I'm calling bullshit. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying, I'm calling bullshit. I don't know Jamal Hill. But that sounds to me like someone who didn't have the grades 
right, who couldn't have gone to college and done that either way. And then later on comes back and says, well, I just didn't want to go to college. I wanted to do mixed martial arts. Yeah, okay, all right. Um, he's got six kids, man. He's 30 years old. He's got six kids. Um, now, he could be the best father in the world. You know, he could be spending time with all his kids. I got two kids, and I'm 44 years old, so I'm not sure how a 30-year-old man is managing this. But I'm going to start painting a picture for you. And it's a picture I've seen a lot of times. Irresponsible, poor decision-making from the inner city. Okay. Um, Poverty is a factor. Okay. So could he have more than one mother with these kids? I don't know. I'm going to guess that, yes, he's probably got more than one mother. And I'm guessing that because of my interaction with people from the inner city, with young African-American athletes. I'm making an assumption here that he's probably dealing with more than one baby mother. I wonder how that influences his day-to-day. He lives there in Grand Rapids. He's from Grand Rapids. He's had kids there in Grand Rapids. He's training at a small gym. These are distractions, not good distractions, okay? Um, So I'm sort of paint this picture here of who I believe Jamal Hill is. I think he's a guy who's trying to do the right thing. I think he's actually, um, you know, trying to be a father, um, you know, trying to be accountable, you know, trying to make his roads in life. But at the same time, there's things pulling him back. Look at his Instagram page, and I'm sorry, I could not help but to think right away. I thought to myself, this is a local guy who's being distracted by his, his local pals, the people that roll with him, his buddies. And I'm going to give you an example of how this manifested itself into his career, okay? When you're looking at his UFC record, you're like, okay, he's got oh, the win, his first contender series fight against Alexander Popek, gets the win. Then he fights Darko Stojic, gets that win in his first UFC fight. Second fight against Abreu in 2020, he wins the fight, finishes the fight, gets his hand raised. Great. After the fight, he tests positive for marijuana. Now, look, I'm not here to lecture people on not smoking marijuana. It's not a big deal. Heck, it's legal in most states. Um, So that's not the point here. It's about decision making. Okay, so I'm going to bring up another example. In the NFL for years, they all knew when the time period, the NBA too, when they were going to test the guys just knew, don't smoke for a week or two before this test. Get your shit cleaned out or a month. You know, it depends on how long it takes to clean it out. But the point is, when people tested positive in the league, like the NBA NFL years ago, the guys around them would be like, you're an idiot. You couldn't just stop smoking for a few weeks, dude. You, couldn't, you knew the test was coming. So here we have a fighter who knew the test was coming. <laughs> He's aware of that. It's not the smoking weed part. That's not the issue. It's obviously not, a, not an enhancer. Didn't make him stronger. Didn't make him throw a better knee for Abreu. It's a discipline factor. You got six kids. You're getting popped for smoking weed. You went in there against Paul Craig like like it was sweet. Okay? He went in there against Paul Craig like he was in a street fight in Grand Rapids. Like it was no big deal. And Paul Craig almost literally took an arm off of him. <laughs> okay? Um, that injury was a dislocated elbow. I want to emphasize that. Is there's like stuff about how he broke his arm. It's a dislocated elbow. I've had this elbow myself one time. When it happens, yes, your arm is pretty much completely no longer in control. The nerves don't don't register to your head. When it happened to me, I felt like my arm was like all the way over here, and it was over here, and I just couldn't figure it out because mentally, your 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 actual brain is connected to those nerves, and those nerves are all stressed out and like twisted up, and so you just don't even feel your arm. It's weird, and so that also lends to the reason why people were like, "Oh my gosh, Jamal Hill was so tough, man. He just didn't even flinch." Uh, that's called a little shock, guys. He was a little bit of shock. Um, his arm probably wasn't hurting him at all. The nerves were all, you know, squeezed up and whatever. He probably felt most of the pain later on when they were reducing it and popping it back in place. But according to that night, according to 
the big bad boss, he said that the, the arm was not broken. The arm was dislocated. So that makes some sense as to why he's coming back here and being able to fight with, you know, not short notice, but like a little bit shorter than people would have imagined based upon how bad that looked. Um, and then for Crute, his injury was like he kicked Anthony Smith, got dead leg, was probably fine by the end of the night. So both these guys are coming off of weird injuries that looked really bad initially, but once you break it down, it's not so bad. So more about Jamal Hill. Here's some positives about him. I know I've been kind of taking some shots at him. Some positives. The guy is on a winning streak. As far as I'm concerned, that Abreu no contest because of the knee and the marijuana thing, that's a win. He won the fight. You know, so for all intents and purposes, he started off his UFC career with three straight wins, four wins in a row if you consider, if you consider the contender series win in 2019. So that's a good start before he ran into Paul Craig. He finished two of his first four fights in the UFC, okay, because he did finish Abreu, and he definitely knocked the hell out of, of St. Prue. So he went. He won those two fights by finishing those first fights. The, the finishing those fights. The first fight he fought against Darko Stoichik, that was by decision, and of course he lost to Paul Craig. So again, two of his first four fights UFC, two finishes. He's got punching power, lethal power. Um, he's off balance with his boxing. It's not you know the best technical boxing at times. He's got power in his hands. He's got a lot of volume, and he's kind of guy where he may not hit you hard with every punch, but he's kind of adding up, leading up to another punch where he's gonna unload on you. Okay. Now, some more concerns here that I have over Hill, okay? The last fight, he did get injured. He came into that fight with a lot of confidence, and Paul Craig literally almost ripped his arm off, okay? So, 30 years old, he's still probably full of piss and vinegar, still very confident in himself, but how does that affect him now coming back from that? Same thing for Crute. I'm not saying it's, it's unique to Hill, but how does now, you know, Jamal Hill respond from that? I mentioned the training. I don't think it's good to be in your hometown, hanging out with your boys. He's on Instagram. You can see him. He's throwing footballs on the block, hanging out with his friends. That could be a big distraction. Um, his family could be a big distraction. The boxing technique. Here's the last little shoe to drop here on Jamal Hill. I've heard a bunch of people break down the fight and say that Jamal Hill is an amazing boxer. Great boxing. This and this about his hands. I don't agree. I, I, I totally don't agree. As a matter of fact, I would, I would encourage you, watch Jamal Hill fight and then put on a boxer. Watch a, just a boxing match. No, he's not a very good boxer. No, no. What he is is a tough kid from Grand Rapids who probably won a lot of street fights, who's got a chin, okay, not scared of shit, okay, not going to back down from nothing. When he walks out that cage, he's got six kids to feed, checks to write. <laughs> like, here's a guy who, if he gets bonus, if he gets bonus of the night, that check is going to six different kids' mamas, possibly. Uh, that's, that's, that's. I'm joking. The point is that check is being cut a whole bunch of different ways. He's got bills to pay outside the octagon. He's probably safer in the octagon and less stressed than when he steps out the octagon. And so all I'm saying here when I'm adding all this up is here's a guy, young man, a lot of pressure on his shoulders. I don't think the hype is real. I've heard people say, oh, he's an amazing prospect, whatever. Look, I have nothing personal against the guy. I never met him, never talked to him. Just seems to me. You've got a young African-American kid from Grand Rapids with the world of pressure on his shoulders, not training at a very good gym, um, just got his arm snapped almost off, and people are talking about him like he's the next best thing coming. I don't have not seen it yet. I have not seen that ability yet. His boxing looks sloppy. He looks like he's off balance. Um, if you look at the first round against Ovens St. Prue, that fight, he's sloppy. Right, The fight starts off round one. He's sloppy. He's getting hit in his face with punches he should not get hit with. And with a guy like Jimmy Crute, he doesn't have amazing knockout power, but he's a hard hitter. He's a tough guy. He's a brute by his nickname. He's coming in there to fight and mix it up. So I think what happens here is the fight does not go the distance. I think one of these two guys finishes each other, but I think it's Crute finishing Jamal Hill. I think he cracks Jamal Hill and he hurts him. Now, does he submit him? Ugh, I don't know about that. Now, 
It's possible, but I see more of Jimmy Crew grinding this fight out on the ground, getting on top of Jamal Hill, pounding out Jamal Hill, and getting a TKO in that manner. Now, if it goes distance, the problem then becomes that I don't know about Jimmy Crew's the cardio, and I don't really know much about Hill's cardio either. If it goes to the round three, and it's like a 1-1 one -one fight or close, now you're going to just have a brawl. It's going to get exciting. Somebody's going to get clipped or knocked out. But that might be what happens in round three. But if it doesn't go to round three, I think round two is an opportunity there for Jimmy Crute to finish the fight, wear on Hill, catch him with a right hand, catch him off balance. Um, Hill's just sloppy. I can't, I can't say any, I can't say another way. And I believe it lends to his his personality, the person who he is, the decisions he's making in his fight. I want to go back to that Paul Craig fight. If you don't remember leading up to that fight. He was very confident, okay? He was like, oh, this is a light work for me, a walk in the park. And then you look at his face when he's on the ground there, sitting there with his arm just all like jello after the fight. He looked shocked. He was like, damn, I just got effed up in this fight. This is not a street fight in Grand Rapids. I'm not fighting some guy with a pair of low sagging jeans and sneakers. He doesn't want to get dirty. I'm fighting a real dude. And so what I'm trying to tell you guys without overstating it is I've met young athletes like Jamal Hill. He is confident. He, he, he does mean well. He does want to go out there and succeed. But all the pieces are not in place, brother. They're just not in place. He's a guy who was 8-0 before his last fight. He's going to fall now to 8-2. And, and the writing's on the wall. Either change up your training. You got to move out of that area. Um, get into a gym where you're in an environment where you got some real studs. You know, get away from the distractions. You know, get yourself in a situation where you're immersed with people that are like you, that want to succeed. Now, how does he do that? I don't know. He's got young kids. He's got bills to pay in that area. He's got obligations. So all I'm saying is when I looked at this whole situation, for me, it's stacked up against this young man. I think the UFC is giving him a really hard test here, and it's a test for both fighters, but I feel like it's more so a test for Hill. I think Crute had a freak injury thing. It was weird. He actually was doing a good job there against, against Anthony Smith. I think Crute comes in here. He shows that he's on a different trajectory right now than Hill. He's got better. He's got just a better overall program, better training. You know, came from a family where people were fighting before him, boxers and whatnot. So it's just all there for Crute. I like Crute to win the fight. Sorry for the long take or the breakdown, guys, but this one really interested me, and I wanted to really express to you some of the concerns I have about what's going on with Jamal Hill outside the octagon and how that might play a role in how he fights in this fight. So good luck with this one, guys. Next up on the main card, we've got a battle between two veteran fighters in the lightweight division. Clay Guida from the United States and Leonardo Santos from Brazil. Santos is 18-4-1 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. Currently minus 190 in the money line. He's 41 years old in nine months, so we'll round that up to 42. He's six foot and height with 75 inch reach, and he's training out of Nova Uniao. As for Clay Guida, who goes by the Carpenter, he's 36-21-0. That's a 57-fight career. Impressive. He's 2-3 in his last five fights, currently plus 160 in the money line. He hails from Johnsburg, Illinois. 39 years old in 11 months. We'll round that up to 40. We'll call him a good 40 years old here. Five foot seven and high with 70 inch reach. He fights out of elevation fight team. So just the obvious right there is a five inch reach and height advantage there for Santos. We'll see how that plays out as we break down this film here. Now, according to the public vote here, it looks like Santos is getting 75% of the public votes on Tapology, And obviously Guida is getting 25%. Um, so just some more numbers here for you. Striking numbers for Guida. He's landing... 2.53 strikes per minute and absorbing 2.71. So pretty much equal output versus what he's also receiving. For Santos, almost identical numbers here. He's landing 2.65 strikes per minute 
and absorbing 2.77. So both these guys are slightly under that threshold where you want to be striking more and landing more than you're, you're receiving, but it's pretty much 50-50, right? For takedown numbers here for Guida, again, the former college wrestler, he's taking down his opponents 3.24 times per 15 minutes. It's a good takedown ratio. That's pretty much a takedown per round, per three-round fight. Okay, his defense not so good, 68% takedown defense. For Leonardo Santos, he has 89% takedown defense. Very, very impressive. Now he's landing only 1.07 takedowns per 15 minutes. So a little bit less active than the takedown category. Um, we'll talk more about that because in a recent fight that Guida had against Mark Madsen, these guys are both like former wrestlers and neither guy even really attempted a takedown. So we'll discuss how this may affect this fight. Now, um, let's talk here some more information, background information on Leonardo Santos. So Santos... Started BJJ when he was five years old, and he started studying under Wendell Alexander. If the name does not ring a bell, I'll tell you a little bit about Mr. Alexander. He's the co-founder of Nova Uniao, and he's more or less a Brazilian jiu-jitsu legend down there in South America. Um, so this guy has been studying, that is Santos, under Wendell Alexander since he was like five years old, since he was a kid. So excellent coaching. Obviously, BJJ expert has multiple awards from BJJ, you know, world championships and whatnot. So... He also, back 2013, competed in the Ultimate Fighter Brazil Season 2. He actually lost, but that was back 2013, so he had some experience way back in the day with the UFC. Um, some positives about Leonardo Santos. He's 7-1-1 in the UFC, so very good winning percentage in the UFC. He's got pretty darn good experience. Obviously, he's you know 41, about to be 42 years old. Um, his most notable wins in his career, that's where you start digging. Like, wait, how? You know, this guy's 18-4-1, pretty good record. You know, again, 7-1-1 in the UFC. Who has he beaten? You know, who has he fought? Who were his top-level performances? And I couldn't find much of anything. I'd say Kevin Lee in 2015, and then Roman Bogatov in 2020. Now, Bogatov only fought one UFC fight. Uh, we'll talk about that here in a minute. But those are his two most notable wins in his career. He doesn't really have much beyond that. Now, he's going to have significant height and reach here. He is the better boxer. I, I believe that's going to play a factor in his fight here, especially, let's say, if the fight goes to the full distance, right, where it's going to come down to points and scoring. Um, he's not a high-volume fighter. Again, only 2.65 strikes per minute. But with a 5-inch reach advantage, he should be able to land a few more strikes. That might play a factor here. Now, some some negatives here on Leonardo Santos, just general negatives. Now, both guys are over 40, more or less, right? So that's a negative. How does that affect each fighter? I'd say Guida's got more wear and tear in his body. I'd say Santos, in the last two fights especially, has shown that he's getting tired in a way that he didn't show towards the beginning part of his career or towards the middle of his career, right? So it seems as if the, the, the age is affecting him a little bit. For Guida, he's about to be on the other side of 40 as well. So it's not like, you know, he's a young, you know, young buck either. But I'm just saying age is a factor here for Santos. Um, Santos is coming off of a bad loss, okay? He got knocked out within the last, like, four or five seconds, okay, against Dawson. He was on the ground on his back. He got hit twice after he was out. I just want to point that out. So he's on his back on the ground. He's getting hammer fisted. He goes completely cold, cold out. He takes two more hard shots from Dawson while he's out. Don't like seeing that. It was the first time that he had lost a fight in 12 years. So mind you, that last fight, you know, for Santos, he's coming in there, hadn't lost in 12 years. It goes to the end of round three. Some people thought he may have won the fight. Some people thought maybe Dawson won the fight. It was close either way. Dawson finishes him, ends him. Kind of a really bad loss, bad loss, put it that way. Just a rough way to lose the fight. Now, um, I mentioned the last two fights, and you can look at those fights. The links are in the description for those two fights. He is slowing down significantly. You see even towards the end of round one, he starts slowing down. His footwork is never really quick anyway. He's not a bouncer. He's not like Muhammad Ali. He doesn't circle a lot. But he starts to slow down. 
it seems as if his opportunity to win is early in that first round, even submission-wise, early in the fight. As the fight goes on, the guys get sweaty, they get slippery, it gets hard to you know, lock in submission. So um, I'm noticing a cardio issue. It's just one of the things that I'm just seeing on film from him. Now, he has limited punching power, I believe, in general. He's not a huge knockout artist, you know, just not part of his game. But again, as he gets tired, now the punches also don't have much power behind it. So, you know, this is a fight where if Guida can get this fight to round two, and especially to round three, he should find advantages. He should be able to be the fresher fighter, have more volume, be able to overpower Santos in some ways. And I think Santos, again, diminishing power in his hands, diminishing punching power, it'll be something where Guida can walk through things and do more, okay? Um, the hardest opponent in his entire career, I had to ask myself that question, who's the hardest person Santos fought? And that's probably Grant Dawson, his last fight. Um, probably his biggest challenge. And Grant Dawson's a good fighter, but again, that puts in perspective. Santos is 42 years old. You know, he's fought 25, whatever, 24 some odd fights. Um, and uh, he's 7-1-1 in the UFC. He just hasn't really gone up against great competition. Now, um, looking here at uh, just some more notes on... Uh, so, all right, let's move on. Let's talk about Clay Guida here. So for Clay Guida, born and raised in Illinois to an Italian family, began wrestling at the age of five, three-sport athlete from Johnsburg High School. He went on to wrestle at Harper College. He competed at 149 pounds. He's the younger brother of a fellow mixed martial artist named Jason Guida. I'm going to just save you the time here. Don't even look at that tapology page because you're going to see an MMA record that is just ratchet. Um, when I found out that was his brother, I'm like, you probably shouldn't tell anyone that's your brother. The dude went like, he won like two of his last 20 fights. Like, I'm not, I'm not kidding. It's just, just a wacky, wacky situation. Um, he finished, he finished his career with a record of 19 and 28. Anyway, more information about Clay Guida. He coached some high school wrestlers. I'm not sure if he's still doing it. Uh, but notably, he actually coached some high school wrestlers in a tournament against um, Daniel Cormier. Daniel Cormier talked about it actually during one of his fights. So um, seems to be also very enthusiastic, likes coach, likes to work with uh, young athletes. Some positive things about Clay Guida. He's a UFC veteran. He's been fighting the UFC since 2006. That's 15 years, dude. 15-year run in the UFC. No matter what you say about this guy, um, two things you know. Number one, he's got to be likable. Because Dana White and these guys will get rid of you if you're an asshole. Um, second thing is, he's got to be serviceable. He's got to be somebody who's available, will show up and, you know, you know, do enough to basically collect the paycheck and keep moving forward. Um, and I believe over the course of his career, he's been that kind of guy. A lunch pail type of guy. He's blue collar, comes to work, ready to go. No bullshit, no excuses, right? 31 total fights in the UFC, if you include the three fights in the Ultimate Fighter series, right? So 31 total UFC fights. Well, actually, technically, again, let's be technical. 28 total UFC fights and three fights in the Ultimate Fighter matches. In Ultimate Fighter, he was 2-1. and one. Um, His most notable wins, and this is going to surprise you here. If you haven't looked at the topology, it's going to surprise you. He beat Nate Diaz in 2009 via split decision. He beat Anthony Pettis during Anthony Pettis' prime in 2011. And he beat PJ, BJ Penn in 2019. That's obviously post-prime BJ Penn. But still, you know, he could walk around and say, I beat Nate Diaz, I beat Anthony Pettis, you know. 15-fight winning streak. At one point in his career, he did have a 15-fight winning streak, which is impressive. Very active fighter, and I want to mention that, you know, how active he is compared to how active or not active um, uh, Santos is, okay? So for Clay Guida, this is going to be for him this year. Um, looking at my, my notes here, I'm sorry. Um, this will be his eighth fight since 2019 and third fight this year. So think about that. This will be Guida's eighth fight since 2019 and his third fight this year. Whereas in the case of Santos, this will be his third fight since 2019. Yeah. So it's just a big difference there in terms of activity. And look, at this age, I guess it depends on what your goals are. Is Guida trying to get his brains knocked out? Is he is he feeling up for it? Is Santos trying to pick and choose and trying to, 
you know, milk out the rest of his career. I don't know. But <clears throat> clearly Santos is much less active here than Guida is. Now, some cons or some negatives here on Guida. His record in the UFC, 31 total fights, um, 16 and 5 record. So he's more or less a 500 level UFC fighter. Okay. Um, he's 2 and 4 in his last 6 MMA fights. I want to emphasize MMA fights because you go to topology here and you'll see he's got two grappling bouts there in 2019. Um, so just counting his MMA fights, he's 2 and 4 in his last 6 fights. Um, he's got no finishes of recent. Okay. So one finish in his last 8 wins. So of his last 8 wins that he's actually had, he's only had one finish in those 8 wins. So not a lot of finishing power, right? Um, this might be the last UFC fight for him. This is in context. Look at the situation here for him. He's been having a rough run. He's been losing a lot of fights recently. I mean, he's got a few fights here in a row he's losing. He did get the win against Michael Johnson back in February of this year. Um, but overall, this could be the end of the road for him. I'm sure he feels that pressure. I'm not sure how that pressure is going to you know, translate into the octagon. Will he be sharper? Will he be more aggressive? Will he dig deeper? I mean, that's kind of the way he fights already as it is. I'm not sure how much he could get, right? Um, awkward fighting style. So this is both a positive and a negative for Guida, but he's very awkward, you know, shifty, weird movement. Um, doesn't really, really have a boxing style per se. Um, just more of like this herky jerky head movement comes at you from odd angles, throws punches from odd angles, it has some punching power, but again, things are so, um, there's no really rhyme behind the reason, not a lot of combinations, not great kicking game, um, decent wrestler, a grappler, a tough guy. Um, now, here's one of the biggest issues here for Clay Guida. And if you don't know, he tends to get submitted, okay? So, for example, he's been submitted in four of his last seven losses, okay? So, the last seven times that he's been defeated in, a, in an octagon, four times that was by submission, okay? Doesn't even include his submission loss in an, by armbar in a grappling tournament back in 2019. So, I'm not even counting that submission loss. Who's he fighting against? A Brazilian jiu-jitsu master. 40 something year old man you, he could be a, it could be a 50 year old brazilian jiu-jitsu master if he puts himself in a bad situation tries to grapple tries to get santos to the ground he could get caught in a guillotine he can get choked out that's a prop you got to consider even though i'm on my buddy here um, guida to win the fight you know i think he's gonna win this fight by decision and he's gonna outlast santos um you got to consider the prop bet there by submission for santos it's a real possibility now now that we've talked about that, look at some of their recent fight history, okay? So for the for the fighters, we looked at, for Santos, we looked at the fight versus Dawson. Now, that fight's interesting because there's a few different things you want to pull apart from this. There's some people who say he won the fight. Um, some people say, well, Dawson, second look, look like Dawson won the fight. Either way, it's a close fight, but the last seven, eight seconds of the fight, <clears throat> he's on his back, and Dawson lands some really hard hammer fists, completely knocks him out, puts him out entirely cold. Um, wasn't the smartest moves there uh, by Santos. If he was in danger, he needed to move himself out of the way. He kind of just kind of laid there, didn't really defend himself very well, allowed himself to be hit. Losing that fight after 12 years of not losing and then losing it that way and getting finished that way, how does that affect him coming into this fight? This is his first fight since then. If he gets knocked out, for example, in this fight by Clay Guida, who's not a knockout artist, but Clay Guida somehow gets to him and knocks him out, immediately you're like, oh, it's a chin issue, he's getting old. So that's a possibility. It's a, it's a possibility. I don't want to paint this guy with, with one brush and say his whole career is going to be over because he's going to have a chin issue at the end. I'm just saying the way that happened, it was vicious, okay? Um, and that fight wasn't too long ago, right? That fight was back in, um, let me look this back, March of this year. Okay, that's a, that's a good enough amount of time. You'd say, you know, it's a good enough amount of time to recover fully from a bad concussion. So it's not too soon, okay? The other fight we looked at for Santos was the fight against Bogotov in 2020. That's a weird character. I had to look up this guy's information. I'm like, why was he only fighting once in the UFC and he was gone? 
I guess he like it, he did such a bad job in the fight, like meaning that he got several foul violations, got several points taken away from him. And I looked at the fight. I mean, the film the film links in the description, so you can watch the fight yourself. He maybe he commits a, a groin shot, but like it's very slight. It's not like as bad as it was made out to be. But ultimately, he gets let go by the UFC after just one fight. He was an undefeated Russian fighter, like ten and zero or nine and zero coming into that fight. Now he's currently twelve and one. He's fighting, I believe, in Brave FC. Um, but the point is, that was a decent win there for Santos. He's able to um, outmaneuver, position control, um, gets back control at times, you know, um, shows good boxing skills, does slow down at times. He has moments where you see him slowing down, but he does just enough. Now, on the flip side, how much of the points played a part? I want to say, I know for sure two points were taken away from Bogotov, but it may have even been three points. It was like ugly. The, the referee kept taking points from this guy. So, um, if those points weren't taken from him, I don't know how does that fight work out. You know, it's kind of kind of tough to see. But overall, I thought Dawson. I'm, I'm sorry, Dawson. Santos was a good account of himself. Again, got a little tired. So those are the two fights we looked at for Santos. For Clay Guida, the two fights we looked at for him were his Madsen fight, the last fight um, earlier this year against Madsen. That's an interesting fight because both guys come in with a heavy wrestling background. Madsen's a former Olympic wrestler. Here you've got Guida, former college wrestler, um, and neither one of them tried to wrestle. The whole fight was on the feet, striking, very close, and. If you look at it from the standpoint that for Clay Guida, it's a, it's a loss. Not all law losses are created equal, right? It was a split decision loss. Okay, so not so bad. And, you know, Marco Madsen's a pretty good MMA fighter. Now, I don't want to overstate him and, like, say he's amazing, whatever. He's not like George St. Pierre. He's a good wrestler, you know, three-time Olympian, um, you know, a lot of positives there. But he's not a very good striker, neither is Clay Guida. So that match kind of got ugly. wasn't great. Neither guy had great boxing skills or combinations. Bottom line is... Split decision loss here for Clay Guida, but not the worst kind of loss. Um, the other fight here we looked at for Clay Guida was when he fought against Michael Johnson. All right, so that was his last win here. Michael Johnson may not even be in the UFC anymore. I, he might, I think he might be getting cut. That's the word in the street. So, you know, the, unfortunately, that's not an amazing win, and it is by decision, you know. So, um, got to say, the money line is affecting my approach here, too. If this is a straight down the middle pick him, like if it was like minus 100, minus 100, maybe I just say, okay, Santos a little bit. I, the money line maybe affects me from that standpoint. It's a pick him fight, in my opinion. It's a pick him. And since it is a pick him, I believe Clay Guida's got the value here, right? So I'm willing to say there's Leonardo Santos believers out there that he should win. I get it. I, I'm, not even, I'm not even arguing with you. <laughs> I hear you. Uh, I'm with you in, in many ways. By submission especially, if Leonardo Santos comes in here and can be able to hold his own for the first, you know, not hold his own for the first, but the latter part of round two and three can really be there, good cardio, have good volume, you know, keep Clay Guida at, at, at bay, um, I think it's fine. He wins the fight that way. My concern is that Clay Guida, with all this weird action, herky-jerky, he is a veteran, he gets a takedown at some point, um, you know, lands a few strikes that look good. And then we get to round two, end of round two, and, you know, it's that proverbial 1-1. Like, you're not sure who won round one. You're not sure who won round two. It's tight. You're like 1-1, and then we're into round three, and you're like, all right, whoever wins this round wins the fight. And now you got Clay Guida, who's a Tasmanian devil, out there, in and out, herky and jerky. You know, he's that guy, you know, how do I explain this? He's that guy, you look at him, and you're like, what is he doing? What, what, what fighting style is that? He's doing the crane and all kind of weird nonsense. Just a very unique fighter. High, high gas tank. I mean, I mean, high battery level, right? So big full gas tank. He's going to be there at the end. This is where I think that fight turns. And by decision, Guida gets it because Santos is not able to compete at a high level in round three. The card has been an issue of recent. And so I see the fight going down to the end. Two veterans of the sport. 
Guida gets his hand raised. That's the breakdown. That took me way too long. But enjoy this. These guys are two veterans. They're monuments of the sport. And this may be one of their last UFC fights, if not for one or both fighters. Okay? So we got to enjoy this. You know, hats off to the veterans, guys. That's the breakdown. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Please like and subscribe as usual. Deuces. We're up to the co-main event here for UFC Vegas 44. It's a lightweight bout between Rafael Fiziev and Brad Rydell. Now these guys are teammates out of Tiger Muay Thai. A lot of similarities are both 10 and 1, similar in age, similar in height, similar in reach. We'll break it down, but I'm going to tell you right now, this is one of the toughest fights in the card. I'm slightly on the side of Rydell. Now, Rydell, who goes by the Quake, is 10 and 1 overall. He's in a 7-fight winning streak, 30 years old, 5'7", height with 71 and 3rd inch reach. Along with training at a Tiger Muay Thai, he's also training at a City Kickboxing. As for Fiziev, he goes by Ottoman. Same record of 10 and 1, 4 and 1 his last five fights. He's 28 years old, so two years younger. He's 5 foot 8 in height, so one inch taller, with a 71 and a half inch reach, so just about the same exact reach. Now, according to public votes here, it's pretty much down the middle here. The public is on both fighters. You know, these guys are very similar, a lot of similarities. Look at more numbers here in the fighters here. So, Fiziev is landing 5.34 strikes per minute, absorbing 5.76. Not great, pretty much. Same output as what he's receiving. For Riddell, a little better numbers here for his output. He's lagging 4.75 strikes per minute, but he's absorbing only 3.18. For takedowns, Riddell's landing two takedowns per 15 minutes or two takedowns per three-round fight. Fiziev is landing 0.59 takedowns per 15 minutes fight. So better number there for Riddell, but then when you look at takedown defense, Fiziev has never been taken down. 100% takedown defense. Riddell's getting 62% takedown defense. So not as good there for Riddell. If Fiziev decides to take down Riddell, he probably could. Uh, Riddell on film does not show great take on defense. I'm actually surprised it actually says 62%. I would imagine he'd be lower than that. Um, anyway, let's talk here more about these fighters, looking more at the notes that we have with these guys. For Rafael Fizzi, of the fights we looked at here to break down the film were Bobby Green and Diakisi. That fight was in 2021 versus Green and 2020 versus Diakisi. Now, some positive notes here on Fiziev. He's 4-1 in the UFC. He's on a four-fight winning streak. He's beaten Bobby Green, Renato Mociano, Mark Diakisi, and Alex White. His only loss is against Magomed Mostaev. And you know what? Spinning back fist, kind of fluky. Um, on a side note, um, if you're doing some MMA math, though, Brad Rydell did beat Magomed Mustayev uh, by decision, and Magomed Mustayev obviously knocked out uh, Fiziev. Anyway, um, I like Fiziev's footwork. Very good footwork. He could circle away from the action. He also could circle to set up combinations. Um, speaking of combinations, he throws good hand combinations, but he could also include his kicking game with the combination, which I like that a lot. His kicking game is elite. He throws awesome body kicks. Awesome lower leg kicks, head kicks. Um, I would say a quarter of the action, you know, a quarter, maybe a fifth of the of the output, striking output is kicking game included. Okay, so um, very good chin. Other than him getting knocked out by Mustayev, I think he's had a pretty solid chin. Against Bobby Green, took some nice hard punches, was able to stand it, um, stand there with him, go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. Not that Bobby Green's a great knockout artist by any means, but the point is he took those punches, you know, well. Works the body. Um, I mean, just elite level body, you know, a work in terms of the kicking game. Yes, he works with kicks, but also will strike to the body. He does it early and often. He understands the idea that if I could work the body, I could tire out my opponent, bring the hands down and then attack the head. So he doesn't, he doesn't attack the head, doesn't head hunt, just good, smart fighting. Now, some things about his game that are a little concerning. He's been a decision three of his last four fights. So is that because of just the style of the fight? Um, does he lack finishing power? Uh, it's just something to consider. He's been a decision in three of his last four fights. He tends to leave his head open during his exchanges. So like he doesn't, you know, doesn't work to like punch and then get back to guard. Okay. Um, his head's open. Sometimes he just ducks his head a little bit, um, maybe just out of instinct, but like kind of ducks and cringes up. Um, that's 
open for an uppercut or a straight punch. So I feel like he's very open for punches, could do a little bit of a better job on his stand-up defense. Um, gets off balance at times, but that's also linked to some other issue here, which we're going to talk about is cardio. He gets off balance at the end of round two and into round three. Again, I think he just lacks the cardio to keep moving and use the good footwork, which you see him have early in the fight. His ground attack is minimal. So good takedown offense when he decides to take someone down. Um, good, at t good at reversing takedowns, right? And landing in top position. But his his ground attack is minimal. It's easy to tie him up. Um, he, against against Diakasey, you can see that, where Diakasey just tied him up, and the referee almost had to stand him up. So there's some pros and cons there on, on uh, Rafael Fiziev. And again, the fights we looked at on him were against Bobby Green in 2021 and um, against Mark Diakasey in 2020. For Riddell, so he's got a kickboxing and a Muay Thai background from New Zealand. The fights we looked at on him were against Dober in 2020, Silva, I'm sorry, 2021, Silva 2020, and Mustaev in 2020, okay? Now, again, we mentioned Mustaev. That fight was very interesting because on one side of it, you could see where um, the fight was close in the scorecards, and maybe you could see one judge or whatever. He wins by split decision. But he knocks down Mustaev cleanly twice in that fight. In the first round, knocks him down cleanly, okay? Mustaev survives, gets through it. I think all three judges actually had Mustaev winning round one, which to me boggled my mind. I couldn't believe it when I looked at the judges' scorecards after watching round one. I understand Mustaev has back position, has some position control on the ground for the bulk of the round. But the but the bottom one is Brad Riddell knocked his ass down. If anything, that should have been an even round 9-9. But I can't believe a guy who knocks another guy down loses a round 10-9. Um, in round three... Um, I think Riddell clearly wins that round. Round twos were a little bit closer, but it was a close fight overall. The bottom line is Riddell knocks the guy down twice in the fight. It was a good showing. It was a good fight for him. Um, one of the things I really liked a lot about one of the recent fights on on his uh, fight tapology is the fight versus Dober. Watch that fight. The link's in the description. He gets cracked. Okay, Riddell that is. He gets cracked in round one. He's very, very hurt. He shows excellent fighter IQ, great survivor skills, grapples up against Dober, doesn't get a takedown right away, just grapples it enough to survive, get the wits about him, comes back, ends up winning that fight. He loses round one in that fight. All three judges had him losing round one. But he wins round two and three, comes with a decision. He actually comes back to really hurt Dober at one point in round three. He shows a lot of toughness, great survivor skills. And on one side of it, yeah, he gets stunned in round one. He got clipped. He did. But it also shows that he's got a durable chin. So, you know, like, you could be chinny where it's like, you can get hurt. He could still be that kind of guy. But then what does he do after he gets hurt? Does he have good survival skills? Yes, he does. We've seen that. He's never been KO'd in his career. All right, interesting note. He's been armbarred once. It was three years ago, but never been KO'd. Um, some things about, though, Riddell that are a little concerning. He's been to five straight decisions. So he's depending on the scorecards here. That's always a you know, question mark. You know, Judges can do whatever the hell they want to do. And one of those decisions was against, um, I'm going to mention it here, was against Magomed Mustaev, right? That was a split decision win. And I do want to note that fight was in New Zealand, okay? So, like, he had the whole fan base behind him. Really close fight. Gets a split decision win here. So, he very well could be on a two-fight winning streak instead of a seven-fight winning streak. That fight was three fights ago. Anyway, um, experience. For both fighters, we haven't really truly seen them tested. Like, they've fought in guys like, you know, Alex Da Silva and Drew Dober and Jamie Malarkey. And for, for, for ZF, he's fought Mark Casey and Renato Mociano and Bobby Green and Alex White. So, not the top level of the division. I don't think either one of these guys is top level yet either. This may very well be their toughest fight. You know, we don't know. I mean, Bobby Green is a pretty tough fighter too. He's got his issues. But um, this may be the toughest fight. We just don't know how they're really going to behave when they go up in competition, right? Um, for uh, for Verdell, some more notes here. Okay. Win-loss of the rounds. Let me explain this without making it complicated. If you have three judges in a fight, 
each of them are judging each round, right? So if I'm one judge, I'm going to have three rounds at the end of the fight, and I'm going to have my score 10-9, 10-9, 10-9. Three rounds total for one judge. Three judges, right? Each of them have three, three, you know, each of them have their own scorecard with three, three rounds, right? So if you total them all up, that's nine rounds that are being judged, right? And so you have nine total rounds as a fighter. How many of those nine total, nine total rounds do you have to win to win the fight, right? You know, that numbers game, okay? So looking at just the total, total rounds, one or loss here for Brad Riddell, okay, against his most recent opponents. So against Dober, Silver, Mustaev, and Malarkey. Just totaling up those four fights, he's won 25 of the possible 36 total rounds on those judges' scorecards. Not a big deal. Like, okay, yeah, and he won those fights. But here's what I want to explain. Some of those fights were very close. He's won 25 of, of 36 possible rounds, so he hasn't won them all by any means. They were not like clear unanimous decision wins where he won like all three rounds. He was giving up at least a round or two, and some judges he thought he, some judges thought he lost like in, the, in, the, in the Mustaya fight. Some judges he thought he lost that fight. So what I'm saying here is if the fight is very close, he's been flirting with a bad decision loss. He's been flirting with being on the wrong side of a split decision already. So with this fight with Fiziev, who's going to have a lot of output in round one, look pretty good in round two. Round three, Fiziev probably hits a little bit of a wall. He's shown to have some cardio issues. In his recent fights, when you watch those fights, he's shown to be so much of a different fighter in round three than round one and two. That nice high output you see round one and round two turns into him being a little off balance and slow, less output in round three. So if this is a 1-1 fight going into round three, I think there's no question Brad Riddell walks away with an easy win here. He gets round three. I see Riddell probably losing round one, no matter how he wins this fight. I see him losing round one because Fizier is going to have some really hard body shots. You're going to hear those body shots in the in like out of the ring, like pow to the body. But what ends up happening here is, you know, I think the I think these guys don't they don't change their colors here. I think Fizier is a wonderful talent, a lot of power, Kyrgyzstan got the roots, Russian, you know, all those, those different things. But the reality here is that he's been fading late in the fight. Riddell's a tough cookie. He can get to round three. If it's a 1-1 fight after two rounds, which I believe it'll be, Riddell takes round three. He wins the fight. But now it goes to the scorecards, and I think that's where it, look, it could be either way. But I like that decision prop for Riddell by split decision to be more specific. I think he wins this fight here. I think it goes a distance. Both guys are very, very tough. I don't think either one finishes each other, not because they're not great finishers, but because these guys are both just so evenly matched. So that's our breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. It's main event time here for UFC Vegas 44. We've got a bantamweight bout between the UFC veteran Jose Aldo from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and Rob Font from Boston, Massachusetts. Mr. Font's 19-4 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights, currently a slight favorite of the money line at minus 145. He's 34 years old, 5'8", in height with 71.5-inch reach. He's out of Lausanne Mixed Martial Arts. As for Aldo, he's 30-7 and seven overall, 2-3 and three in his last five fights. On the money line right now, he's plus 125 to plus 150-ish. 35 years old, he's 5'7 in height with 70-inch reach, and he's out of Nava Uniao, which is a very good gym down in Brazil. According to Tapology, the public votes here are coming in slightly for Aldo at 54% and Font at 46%. Um, it's tough. You break down the film in this fight and you look at the past history of these fighters, you can make a good argument for either side. Um, I'm slightly on the side of, of Rob Font. We'll break it down. We'll talk about it. Um, some more numbers here on the two fighters. So Rob Font's landing 5.58 strikes per minute. He's absorbing 3.57 strikes per minute. So not so bad. Um, as for Aldo, the veteran, he's landing 3.63 strikes per minute, but he's absorbing 3.59. So the same absorption rate for both fighters, but Rob Font's landing two more strikes per minute. How does that play out in the fight? Well, 
five rounds, um, maybe round four, round five. Rob Font might be the busier fighter. Those championship rounds might be enough to squeeze out a win here. Rob Font, Rob Font, which we'll talk more about this, but he does tend to go to decision a lot. So um, for takedown offense, Rob Font's landing 1.20 takedowns per 15 minutes, and he's defending takedowns at a 53% rate. As for Aldo, he's taking down fighters at a .55 rate per 15 minutes, and he's defending 91% of the takedowns attempted against him, which is excellent. I mean, again, he's had 18 total UFC fights, and a 91% takedown defense is um, really impressive uh, for the veteran there. So let's talk more about Aldo. So Aldo's 12-6 and six overall in the UFC, right? He's 5-6, and six, unfortunately, though, in his last 11 fights. And that brings me back to, like, his first part of his career because when he first came into the UFC, Jose Aldo was, like, on a streak. He started his career off 25-1, and one, and at one point in the UFC, he was on a seven-fight winning streak. His first seven fights, seven fights in a row, and then he comes across McGregor, uh, loses to McGregor, and since then, it's been a little up and down and up and down. Um, we've seen glimpses of the same Aldo, um, the tough, durable, um, got a strong chin, um, very, you know, very good gas tank, uh, balanced fighter, can strike with the best of them, can take a punch, can take the fight to the ground. Um, just one of the, I would say this, he's one of the legends of this generation. He's a guy when, you know, 20 years from now, when he's well back retired and he's going to fights and just, you know, showing up and waving to the fans, um, people will talk very highly of this former champion. So um, some pros on Jose Aldo, he's coming off of back-to-back wins, you know, so the old man is, you know, still kicking, doing well. He beat Marlon Vera and, and Pedro Munoz. Now, prior to that fight, he did go five rounds with Peter Yan, um, and it was uh, it was a good, tough five rounds. But, man, he got his butt kind of kicked there, um, and you can see the difference in levels. And he got finished in round five, which, again, it's not, the, it's not that bad when you consider who Peter Yan is and a very good fighter. Um, but that was on the tail end of a three-fight losing streak where he lost to Marlon Marais via split decision, which, yeah, that was a tough one. I could have gone either way. Um, Alexander Volkanovsky, he went five rounds with Volkanovsky. You know, that's, again, very impressive. Um, and so, look, the guy's durable still at this age, 35. When I say age, I know he's only one year older than the opponent here, but the 35-year-old body of Aldo, what he's been through and the fights he's been in um, and the people he's gone up against, the people who have finished him, you know, for example, fighting Max Holloway back-to-back in 2017 where he gets finished in round three in both fights and really kind of takes a beating. Um, I mean, heck, Max Holloway's taking a beating over his career too. That guy likes to pound. Um, but the point is, when you look at a streak like that, where over four fights, he gets finished three of the four fights, once by Connor, twice by Max Holloway. Um, so look, the guy, from one standpoint, he's been in there with the best of them, right? McGregor, Holloway, Wilkonowski, like, Jan, like, dare I say anymore. But his most notable wins, though, that's when you start to get a glimpse of, like, who is this guy for real on the scale of, like, best fighters pound for pound, best fighters in this generation. Because his most notable wins are literally Marlon, Marlon Vera, Pedro Munoz, Jeremy Stevens and Frankie Edgar. And those guys are not chump change, but it's not like he has beaten someone like Max Holloway, right? Um, so um, those are just some notes on, on on the former champion. I mean, I have a lot of respect for the guy. I think it is uh, noticeable in recent fights he's slowing down. Um, when I say slowing down, I think it's part of his cardio. Like it, he looks like he's showing the signs of a fighter who's at the tail end of his career, uh, maybe not working as hard on cardio or just the wear and tear in the body. So end of round two, end of round three, I see him slowing down more in his fights. He doesn't seem as fresh as he did, you know, seven, eight years ago. This is a five-round fight. So round four and five, if Font is using a good pace, measuring pace and pressure, he should be the fight, the stress, I mean, sorry, <laughs> he should be the fresher fighter, the fighter who's putting more output, right? Um, let's talk here a little bit about Font. So for Font, um, 
Some positives on Font. He's 8-3 in the UFC, so nice winning percentage. He's been a UFC fighter since 2014, so for seven years. He won the Ultimate Fighter fight in round one finish over Matt Snell in 2016. It's very nice. Um, he comes from the regional scene in the Northeast. His most notable wins are against Cody Garbrandt, Marlon Marais, Ricky Simone, and Sergio Pettis. Um, four total losses in his career, and of the four total losses, three of them are against guys that are current UFC fighters, so quality losses. His other loss, the fourth one, was way back in 2012, like his second fight of his pro career. One of the big things I notice about Rob Font when he's fighting, um, and it's a positive, it's you know something I think it's a positive, it could be also you know construed as a negative, he's a very patient fighter, okay, so doesn't get himself off balance, he's on a four-fight winning streak, he's plotting, he's reading his opponent, he's adjusting, he doesn't mind losing round one, he doesn't mind backing up, circling. Um, he's a safe fighter. Looks to me like the kind of guy where if he can make it his choice, it's not going to be a brawl. It's going to be a measured approach. Um, land a few punches, get in and out. Don't get bladed up. Don't get too, too beat up. I'm not questioning his manhood. I'm not questioning if he's a tough guy or not. I'm just saying at the age of 34, he's got a game plan. He wants this to work out a little bit, a few more years. Maybe go for a belt, move up in the division. Um, and don't get your ass kicked in the process, okay? He's being smart about it. Khabib made a whole career of it. There's that in unique stat about Khabib, which I thought was amazing. Khabib Nurmagomedov never even bled in one of his fights. Just incredible, right? Undefeated career champion, never even bled in one of his fights. It's just amazing. Anyway, so for Rob Font here, he's got a very measured approach, okay? Now, on the flip side of that, it does result in things like his last fight against Cody Garbrandt, where it went to five full rounds, Cody Garbrandt gave a good effort. I thought, you know, um, I thought uh, Font looked pretty good too. But man, I, he didn't push the pace and try to get a finish. And when you do that and you let the fight go to the scorecards, this is where it becomes also like scary to put any money behind a fighter like Font. Where here you're fighting a veteran, a guy who the judges respect, people respect. They know him. He's a former champion. If it's close, maybe Aldo gets a little bit of the rub. He gets the benefit of the doubt because of the kind of veteran and his legacy, you know, in the UFC. So, you know, for Font, that does scare me a little bit. Um, but now in terms of just the fighter recently, beating Garbrandt, beating Marias, beating Ricky Simone, um, beating Sergio Pettis. I mean, Sergio Pettis, say what you want. He's not like the best fighter in the world, but he is the current Bellator champion. Um, he's defending his title on Friday night. But anyway, the point is this guy, Rob Font, seems to me like he's peaking. He's one year younger than Jose Aldo, but there's a lot more tread on those tires. Okay, Aldo has fought in what? 10 to 12 more fights in his career and he's gotten his ass beat up you know by some guys when you look at the last two losses for example for rob font he lost by decision in 2018 to rafael ansunco he also lost in 2017 via round one a guillotine choke to pedro muñoz okay before that the decision by to john lineker and then way back in 2012 by decision to des green so on one hand rob font a guy who's only been finished one time by a guillotine choke that's it Okay, that's, a, that's part of his track record, part of his wear and tear. Then you got a guy here like Jose Aldo who, looking at his last few losses, he got pounded out by Peter Yan. He got pounded out back-to-back -back fights by Max Holloway in 2017. He got knocked out in 13 seconds by Conor McGregor in round one. That stuff adds up. You know, those were, that, that, that wasn't the beginning part of his career. From 2015, all right, which was six years ago, to now, he has gotten clipped a few times. He's gotten hurt. He's not the same fighter. So I think Rob Font here who's now peaking at this point in his career. He comes in here a different trajectory. He gets this fight probably by decision, unfortunately, because I just don't see him, um, you know, pushing the pace and trying to finish this fight. And for Jose Aldo, it's also similar. 
You know, his last two wins have both been by decision, okay? He hasn't had a finish since 2019 against Renato Mociano. So, um, bottom line is, I think this may not be the best of main event. I hate to say it that way, but I'm just going to tell you, I'm just being honest. might be a little bit of a slow fight at times. Um, I hope Rob Font pushes the pace. I hope he looks to get a finish because it's better for his pockets. He's going to look to get a bonus off of that. Also, he wants to get more fights in the future. I mean, it's all part of this, right? Um, but I have a feeling... He's going to try to go up in the scorecards. He's going to stay measured. If if this fight's like a landslide on the side of Rob Font, like he's up three rounds to nothing, four rounds to one, or something, just something high at the end of the fight, and it's like the last round, don't be surprised if Rob Font is circling the octagon, circling away from Jose Aldo, and basically just being safe, you know, being a smart fighter, and he just goes to the judges' scorecards for the victory. So on one side of this, I, I don't hope for that because I do want to see more action, but on the other side of it, I get it, man. You want to be a smart fighter. You want to go home to your family. You don't want to be all banged up and bruised up if you don't have to be. And the same goes for Jose Aldo. So um, I expect here kind of a boring, flat um, finish to the end of the night here with a decision. All right, here's our summary of our picks to win. We like Rob Font, Brad Riddell, Jimmy Crute, Clay Guida, Brandon Allen, Mickey Gall. That's the main card. Prelim card, we like Maki Patola, Zagas Magulov, Darian Weeks, the first-timer here to the UFC, Jeremiah Wells, Mallory Martin, Alonzo Menafield, Claudio Puelas, Azamat Merzakhanov, and Luis Smoka. Those are our favorite picks to win. The ones we have the most confident in on the main card, um, I've got a lot of confidence there in Rob Font in the main event. I think if I had to say the second most confident pick on the main card, Brendan Allen. So Brendan Allen and Rob Font are my most confident picks on the main card. The one I feel the least confident about on the main card, um, Probably Mickey Gall, you know, even though I'm choosing him as a dog or pass on the main card, I just, you know, have some questions there about him. And Alex Moreno's a tough SOB, you know. On the prelim card, the pick I like the most, it's, I mean, at this point, it's pretty obvious, Azamat Mirzakhanov. I like him against Jared Vendera as a late replacement. A lot of confidence there in uh, Azamat. If I had to do a second pick on the main, on the prelim card that I like a lot, that I have confidence in, I'd say Maki Patola at plus 140 against Dusko Todorovic. I've got no faith in Dusko Todorovic. I'm going to warn you guys again. Do not lose your money on this guy. Um, he may not even be UFC caliber at this point. Started off 10-0, dropped two fights in a row in the UFC, um, got some chin issues, got some technique issues. So anyway, that's our breakdown, guys. Thanks for joining us. As usual, please like and subscribe. We're not discussing props in this show. We'll have a separate show called our Pick Your Poison show where we go over the prop bets for this card. But anyway, thanks for joining us. Please like and subscribe. Leave comments. If you get some winning tickets from our advice this weekend, come on back. Holler at your boy. If you get some losing tickets based upon our advice being shitty, come on back and yell at your boy. Anyway, guys, thanks for joining us. Good luck with the card. We've got a busy weekend between Bellator and UFC. We're back. We're back, baby. All right, good luck, guys. Take care.